Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaker. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy wonder, I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 158 for June MMXVIII. Backrow the Oracle is brought to you by Robin. Everybody loves the Drake. What's that stand for? Robin. Hello, everyone. This is Rob Myers, and I'd like to invite you to check out my podcast called Robin. Everyone loves the Drake. Rob, are you going to take out the trash? I'm right in the middle of uh, recording an ad for my my podcast. I'll I'll do it in just a little bit, okay? Sorry to interrupt. Boy wonder time. Boy wonder? I'm all man, lady. Uh, Rob? Uh, okay, where was I? That's right. My podcast, Robin, Everyone Loves a Drake. It'll be hosted over at thebatmanuniverse.net. I'll be covering Tim Drake's origin story from the very beginning, starting with Tim's first appearance in Batman 436, also known as Batman Year 3, and hopefully going all the way through the Robin ongoing series, starting with issue 1 and going all the way to issue 183. 183 issues? Wow. Well, it's a good thing, because everyone loves the Drake. You don't like the Drake? I hate the Drake. I love the Drake. How could you not like the Drake? Who's the Drake? Who's the Drake? The Drake is good. Backroll the Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. So, if you're looking for vintage back issues or great modern subscription service, be sure to check out MileHighComics.com. 
Batgirl the Oracle is a proud member of the Batman Universe Family Podcast, hashtag TBU Family. And finally, remember, you can always support the Batman Universe and Batgirl to Oracle by extension by subscribing to the show on Patreon by going to thebatmanuniverse.net. Okay, well, this month I'm pretty excited uh, for many reasons. One of them has to do with the guests, the other has to do with the actual content that we're going to be reviewing, but we're going to be starting the Birds of Prey original ongoing run and so i thought what better person than to have this person on (laughs) and this person is an actual professor cough cough you know professor (laughs) allen who's a fake professor i'm convinced she's also (laughs) an eisner winning author of of course super women so please welcome back to the show and for the first time as an actual reviewer carolyn coca hello bto listeners i'm happy to be here you know, our friendship was almost destroyed, if you remember. So you, I love how you use you use the <laughs> passive voice there, Stella. Passive was destroyed. Why? Oh, because you want me to say I almost destroyed it. That is correct. I see. I almost destroyed this friendship because so this call might never have happened because we're getting towards the end of Star Wars Rebels, and I remember you were very good about texting to ask you know have you seen it yet and then uh if i hadn't you wouldn't say anything and then i would Mm -hmm. respond once i had caught up and then we would chat about it and i guess i had just assumed that you had watched the series finale and so i had said something (laughs) basically a question that i'm still i'm going to ask once again but i asked it and and you responded you're really lucky that i just finished watching it or else i would have been very upset so I'm very sorry for doing that. And I guess that just goes to show you don't assume anything. You just Do have not to ask. assume. Who boy. Yeah. Well, that question was, in fact, I'm sure no one else cares about it, but I certainly do. You know, when did Hera and Kanan have time to form that little child? I guess when something is important to you, you make time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Oh, man, I guess so. I just think about, you know, they had that one mission on the ground and they had that almost kiss moment in the alleyway. And even I guess it was Kanan who said, you know, I miss these missions. So it seemed like they hadn't really had any sort of together time. And and then all of a sudden, you know, flash forward and and she has this little kid with green hair. I didn't think that's how genetics worked. No, I did not. I did not think that either. (laughs) And I appreciated when they when they said his name was Jason, I immediately in my mind decided to spell it J-A-C-E-N, like the old expanded universe novels. Uh, He was one of the sons of Han and Leia, Jason and Jaina, the twins, Anakin, the little one. Um, And and, uh, that has been shown to be the case, that uh, since it's been written up, since the episode aired, and that is the way it's spelled. So that's very cute. But I guess I'm going with the idea that there's more off-screen stuff that we haven't seen. Mm, yeah. So we were just all right all along when we thought they were space married, and we were only <laughs> seeing <laughs> how they behaved in public with sure. the kids around. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But it's just so odd because every time something happened, it seemed like it was the first time, you know, and the I, kiss outside that spaceship when uh, she confesses her love for him. So then when you, you're like, wait, actually they were in a pretty solid relationship or seem to be. Yes. And, and one also wonders about the gestation time. Sure. Of the, <laughs> of, of a child who's part human and yeah. part, oh no, what's the name? Twi'lek. Twi'lek. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. 
If his name is, in fact, spelled J-C-E-N, do you think that is a little foreboding? Because wasn't he the twin <laughs> that went bad? Spoilers. Um, yeah. <laughs> for 20 years ago? Spoilers for a 15-year-old book. <laughs> yes, that is what happened. And I would say similar to the the Darth Vader Anakin arc of going bad, it, it is also not maybe the best written arc the way that he goes bad. What is different this time is that uh, his sister, Jaina, the sword of the Jedi, uh, takes it upon herself to stop him by killing him. Mm. So it's definitely a different – it's not the redemption story of someone looking on Luke Skywalker with his own eyes sure. and uh, reforming. Sure. I, one thing I really like with Rebels, I'll tell you a little bit about this. I was not excited to watch it. So I never watched it when it was airing until this last season when I finally caught up. And I think part of it may have been the animation. And I guess it's more similar to the Clone Wars than you would think. Mm-hmm. But just sort of the 3D, I wasn't too into it. But then I watched all the Clone Wars, and so I think it sort of prepared me for it. But I also didn't like, not Kanan, the other As- one. Yeah, I thought yeah. that he was annoying just in like previews that I saw. And I, I didn't really want to go through that pain. I still find him annoying, actually. He's my least favorite character. But I really grew to love this strange cast. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like in the Aftermath trilogy. I don't know if you mm-hmm. heard that. Yep, but just these, yeah, so these people that, you know, you wouldn't really expect to be together. But they are together and they, they work really well together and they each have their own quirks. Mm-hmm. And, and so I very much enjoy that. And I like how I start to see Hera now pop up in different places. Like she's yes. in the Dr. Afra comic, I think, mm-hmm. maybe in an upcoming arc or something like that. And hopefully we'll see her in the next Star Wars uh, animation that's coming out. I know it's focusing on a pilot uh, with BB-8, but maybe she'll pop up. But I just like that potentially there's more stories to be told with these characters. Yeah, and my approach when it started was very similar to what you just said. I had great love for the Clone Wars. I felt like it really helped fill in what happened. Mm -hmm. Um, And you, you sort of see these personality traits in Anakin, and he's kind of fighting with them a little bit, but you, but you see it in a much more organic way, uh, developing. And when I first do you remember before the clone wars, first there was a movie in theaters called clone wars. And then there was the series after that. And when I saw that movie, I thought this girl, Ahsoka is pretty annoying. Hmm. And over the course of all the clone wars cartoons, um, I really grew to like Ahsoka. I thought that, that they developed her character really, really well. So Going into Rebels, I thought, okay, I guess Ezra is supposed to be the Ahsoka, and this person will be kind of annoying at first while they learn how to be a Jedi, and then I'll grow to love them. But like you, I never did. I found Ezra kind of stuck in my craw throughout the Rebels series. I was not a huge fan of Zeb either. So... I re- but I really did like uh, Kanan, and I liked the Kanan, the Kanan comic series also, I would recommend. Yes, I've uh, read that. Mm-hmm. I like I like Kanan and I like Hera and I like Sabine. I thought Sabine's development was to me better written than Ezra's. So I I do know how you feel and I felt like my favorite episodes of Rebels until the very last season. But into my favorite episodes of Rebels were the ones that called back to the Clone Wars in some way, yeah. like the ones Ahsoka, the one where Ahsoka faced Vader. I, I was oh. that I thought that was fantastic. Yeah. 
I didn't love the I liked the Mandalorian stories that they had. I didn't particularly love the Saw Gerrera stories. I thought he was kind of one note, unfortunately, and he didn't seem like the Saw from from the Clone Wars necessarily. So, yeah, I I think we agree on a lot of these points. What did you think about the more mystical stuff like the wolves? Oh, I was I enjoyed it. I think I if I had only watched this, it might have been a little weird. But I feel like the Night Sisters and mm-hmm. all that stuff that happened, and then on that one planet in in Clone Wars, that you're sort of prepared for it. Mortis, yeah, yeah. But it was weird because he kept saying, you know, Doom, mm-hmm. and only because I have I like to watch things with closed captioning on. Uh. You could tell when it was going D O O M and D U M E. But other than that, I don't know how anyone would be able to recognize when was he talking about Caleb Dune and when mm-hmm. was he, you know, actually talking about Doom and everything like that. But it seemed to have been seeded or sown right in the beginning mm-hmm. with yeah. the uh, with the little cats, yeah, uh, the loft cats. So I feel like it was a nice. I mean, there were strange creatures throughout, so I, I feel like it wasn't just thrown at us; it was built up well. Yes, and then there's kind of that bird that is associated with Ahsoka. Yes, yep, which you noticed. Well, I saw that. I thought, why is there this thing flying Mm -hmm. out? And then you see sort of someone crawl out uh, after post-Ahsoka Darth Vader. And I thought, there's got to be some significance with that bird, so I'm glad that it came back in the end. Yeah, um, and I did think Ezra was good in the last couple episodes. Mm-hmm. You know, to to be fair, but I thought it was a little too quick. It just seemed to, to me he was kind of annoying, 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 and okay, now he's saving the day mm-hmm. in a way that I I didn't think unfolded that well. And it's interesting because apparently people are very annoyed with Sabine. They don't like her. They think that she causes, she's whiny and she causes, and I just, I don't see it. I mean, Ezra's always the one who messes up the mission. Right. And I don't really see that from Sabine, but I guess, I don't know. I should watch it all from the beginning again and look again. No, I I do agree with you on that. I thought that, well, I would, I guess I wouldn't describe her as whiny. I would maybe describe her as a little cooler um, and I just kind of took that as a Mandalorian thing sure. and what she's been through, especially when all the stuff about her family is revealed a bit more. Um, it, it didn't seem it just seemed like part of her character to me that she was a little harsher. That's not even the right word. Um, a little harder. I, mean, I don't know. But I didn't see cold, her as I my, guess. Like a yeah. Fish. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of set off. I think also the person who never dies is Darth Maul. <laughs> When he showed up, I, I thought, give me a break. You know, this guy's here again. Is he ever going to die? Oh, man. I do, do like Darth Maul, but yeah. I, at some point, I mean, I was glad he showed up on the Clone I was happy to see him yeah. on the Clone Wars. I was happy to see him in Rebels. But, of course, I'm in the back of my mind, I'm thinking this is really ridiculous. Yeah. And that one where he faced Obi-Wan, in my, in my mind, I expected – the lightsaber battle to end all lightsaber battles and that it would be 20 out of 22 minutes of the show. And then it was like five seconds. And I totally understood why they do it that way. I mean, that is it all. If you're a really great warrior, it all happens in the eyes and anticipating the other person and whatever. But I, I was hoping for more than that. So Mm -hmm. I guess I'll just say, um, okay, Lucasfilm, just give me my Obi-Wan in the desert store story starring uh, Ewan McGregor. I'm ready for that bring it okay i think there is isn't there a really well loved and well-known obi-wan book 
There is an Obi-Wan book where he is on Tatooine and it is in that in-between time. It's in it's called Kenobi. And I'm trying to remember oh, okay. if it was the first book of the new canon or if it was right before oh, the new. Oh, okay. I'm not sure it was that much loved, but I think that it could very easily carry a film. That storyline could carry okay. a film. Obi-Wan is just sort of, he's trying to keep to himself, but he sees some injustice happening. So he has to step in. Of course. Of course he does. Yeah. He's, he's Spider-Man in that way. <laughs> um, final question on this. What do you think about the future of this particular story? Because we see Thrawn and Ezra go off with the yeah. hyperspace whales. And we also see Sabine being visited by Ahsoka, I, I assume, with the intent to look for him. Do you think there's possibility? Is there a story there? Some people think Thrawn and Ezra might be dead. I personally don't think that. But what, what are your thoughts on the ending of this series? Yeah, I, I would assume that Thrawn and Ezra are not dead. Um, but when you say they're not dead and when you say Ahsoka and Sabine are not dead either, you have some explaining to do about <laughs> where two Jedi have been all yeah. this time. And I think that runs you into some difficulties that are hard to get around. Mm. Because if you're setting up both, I mean, both Ezra and Ahsoka, um, you know, grow and become heroes in the time that they're teenagers. So it is just hard to believe that when you've spent years setting that up, that they would stay away from the conflict, um, the, you know, like the final big battles with the rebels uh, fighting the Empire. I mean, I love Thrawn as a character. I loved the Thrawn trilogy of books. Um, there's also two more books called The Hand of Thrawn Duology, and then there's the one Thrawn book in the new canon, and the second one is coming. Yeah, I'm excited. I am. Definitely looking forward to that. So I would love to see Thrawn live. But again, if he lives, how do you explain where he's been? Yeah. As far as um, I, I'm just going to call her Ahsoka the White because <laughs> I guess she's <laughs> she's nice Gandalf or something. Yeah, sure. um, so yeah, I love the idea of Sabine and Ahsoka buddy cop movie mm -hmm. <laughs> trying to go find um, Ezra and Thrawn. I just I'm not sure how you'd explain their whereabouts. Yeah. What do you think? You think everybody's uh, going to wind up okay? Well, we know that Hera at least exists in I'm trying to think here, Rogue One. Well, yes. be because of weren't they calling for the ghost and they actually show yes. the ghost and everything. Mm -hmm. So we we at least know that she's around. But I feel like because we have this new Thrawn book out and then there's one with Darth Vader that he should be still around unless that stuff is happening pre-Rebels, but I don't That's imagine it is. I guess we won't really know until the Thrawn book comes out and yeah. we'll figure out what the timing of it. But that's the thing with – I feel like this franchise, Star Wars, compared to other things, wraps well so well together that everything mm -hmm. really does have to fit. Whereas, you know, if you have a Batman novel, it's not necessarily going to jive up with, you know, the comics and everything. So I right. think answers could be found. But I, I hope that we see something because it's open – it's so open-ended. And I think even, you know, the creator of the show was, was talking about that. He knows that it's open-ended. I don't think yeah. this new show has anything to do with it, though. It just seems like it's, you know, a pilot during the – during the New Hope era with Will BB-8 or something, or it's, yeah, something like that, right? I would, yeah, I mean, I would assume that they would put some cameos in Let's there. Hope. Yeah. 
Um, but but I, I am open to the creation of a whole new cast of characters. I mean, like you were saying with Rebels, you kind of come to embrace them or like with the Aftermath trilogy. Sure. By the time you finish the third one, you're like, oh, write more books with these people. <laughs> you know, um, Nora and Sinjir. And I mean, they're just oh, an sure. interesting bunch. Yep. Well, let's hope. I mean, it'd be awesome to have a uh, a movie, you know, hour and a half film or something. Sure. Know, direct a video or something, but. Oh, yeah, we'll see. Direct, yeah, direct-to-video would be okay. I yeah. would be okay with that. <laughs> I, I would like to say that I probably don't really need to see the Pergil or the Bendu. <laughs> I'm just going to go on sure. record there because yeah. I just feel like that was so deus ex machina oh, sure. for season finales and that yeah. kind of bug because I would rather see our characters succeed on their own. Absolutely, yeah. I think that – Ahsoka has quickly become one of my favorite characters, and Hera is right up there. Yeah, I so, agree. Uh, I'm, I'm very me too. I, uh, yeah, I love that Rebels has given me some more characters to love, and I have those two little pop figs. I just need a Kanan pop fig <laughs> so that I can put him mm-hmm. next to Hera. <laughs> have little shipping moments, but yeah, other than that, oh, can't wait, can't wait. Did you read their two novels, uh, A New Dawn and the Ahsoka novel? Yes. A New Dawn is what got me into this mess. Ah, it is a mess. Yeah. (laughs) Because I had found out about it. Well, first, I think I had Googled to see, is there anything else that I could read or watch with with Rebels? Or is there, you know, a video game, something like that? And then I saw A New Dawn. And so I read New Dawn. And then it just started spiraling out of control after New Dawn. It was, yeah. Had that, had Phasma. Then the mm-hmm. Thrawn, then the Thrawn trilogy. Then Tom was a terrible friend and gave me Aftermath and that uh, what was it, Bloodlines. Mm-hmm. And then I read Leia. It was insane. It's it's insane. It goes on. You just have to put a stop to it. You've got to show self control. And you and you do have to make some decisions. Like, am I only going to read new canon stuff? Sure. Or if I read the old expanded universe, am I going to read about the dawn of the Sith? 2000 years before a new hope or am i only going to read the characters from the original trilogy or am i only going to read about when they're older and the kids their kids are kind of the central characters and <sighs> if you if you i mean anybody who's interested if you look up if you type in you know star wars expanded universe you will come up with this chart that will tell you every book in the old expanded universe and the exact time period that it's set in um, so you can kind of make choices that way about the characters that you're most interested in. Mm-hmm. I did recently listen on tape to Darth Plagueis because I oh. heard good things about that. And mm-hmm. I have also heard good things about Darth Bane. I know that's a trilogy, yes. so I might go out of my way. But I'm just looking. I don't have as much of a stake in new versus old canon. Okay. Like I know some people do. When I, I talked with Shag about, because we compared old versus new Thrawn, and he put it in terms that I really did understand, though, which was pre-New 52 versus New 52, <laughs> Barbara Gordon. And I'm like, oh, I understand. Then then I was really able to show that empathy there. But yeah, I think, I you know, it, yeah. 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 I think if you're just looking for a good story, there's so many to potentially have. And it is sad that some might not work anymore, but I think but they're, they're still, still fun. There. Yeah, you know, absolutely. they're still there. I mean, just like we're we're talking about Birds of Prey today sure. that is pre-New 52, right? Yeah, but it's still 100 issues and change, and they're still great stories. Absolutely. They so are. 
Well, that's a good transition point for uh, talking about <laughs> comics anyways, because we could go on and on about Star Wars novelizations and, and all of those things. But I did want to talk to you a little bit about some things that have been happening recently. One of them was actually Detective Comics 980 that came yeah. out maybe last month, was it? Was it in... <laughs> It wasn't it only two weeks ago? Oh, it was two weeks ago. I think yeah, so. I had built up because I'm on sabbatical from the Batman Universe podcast. <laughs> and so I had just built up. I think I had five or six issues. So mm-hmm. I just sat down and, and read all of them. But what's the exciting thing about 980? Well, <laughs> <laughs> there is a moment where um, Cass and Steph are being told that their, I guess you could say, real future has been stolen from them. Their potential, their potential has been taken away. And what is this potential that they're being shown? It's the two of them in their classic Batgirl outfit. Yes. And so I, all right, I'm going to admit it. I saw that panel. I had tears. Oh. I was, yes. I mean, I would love to have a League of Batgirls book or a yeah. Batgirl Incorporated mm-hmm. book. Um, And I think that would be a really easy thing to do because, you know, Stephanie Brown's Batgirl was kind of like that already in a way. And I thought that was a very successful way to go about it. Um, But showing it, it was just a couple of quick panels, but it showed them in their classic outfits and it kind of showed them as an accepted part of the family. And Babs was in the wheelchair. She was holding up a sign that said stop, which have you you haven't read No Man's Land yet. Is that right? I actually have read No Man's Land. It's been a little while. Okay. Well, the stop sign is kind of a moment in No Man's Land. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So I just, I I would love to see this coming in the future. I realize it could just be, here's a panel to pull at the heartstring. Here are a couple panels to pull at the heartstrings of the fans of these characters in their different incarnations. But I'm hoping that it means something more. Do you think it does? I, I hope it does as well. I think Tynion has shown that he does very much care for the history there. And the fact that he has pulled in even Steph as Robin, which yeah. I, I think the narration under that perhaps yeah. gave too too much credit to her time there because uh, I always have problems with that particular time. Not that she was Robin, but just how she was quickly ejected as Robin because that was, what, yes. two issues? That was real quick. Not much. <laughs> but I guess the fact that it's, it's showing another universe, right, because it does say that this is like a peek into what mm-hmm. potentially could have happened. I. Pff, I don't know what, unless there's some sort of merging event that we have, you know, sort of like rebirth, but it does something even more physical to the universe. I'm not sure what we're going to see, but I think it does allow the possibility of Steph and Cass becoming something more than just spoiler and orphan. But I'm also reminded of Green Lantern in... (laughs) Justice League Unlimited when mm-hmm. they flash forward mm-hmm. and then Hawkgirl afterwards is talking about, see, we're meant to be together and he's like, I don't want to be defined by my destiny. So I could also see those characters <laughs> sort of um, pushing against that and, and just letting it evolve how it evolves, not just jumping into something because they saw that that was a possibility. But I would, I absolutely think that a Batgirls book would work. I mean, I think we've we've seen it a little bit before. It's just we don't have that title and we don't have the characters consistently showing up. But that's, I think, what we need so that Barbara can take on that 
mentorship role that mm-hmm. I, I feel like she is so good at. And that was absolutely one of my favorite panels, seeing Barbara Gordon teaching Cass, because that's one of my favorite relationships, yeah. just her being a, a mother figure to her and, and uh, helping her learn how to read and yeah mm-hmm. so it, it was a wonderful moment and don kept harassing me about reading it and so i finally did donovan and it was it was great it was great yeah i loved it and and you're you're right about there is a way to do it without merging universes which is now that they've seen this potential and it's something that maybe they want to strive toward um they could push in that direction and say well why can't we be why can't we do what we're doing, but do it like that. Do it as bad girls. Right. And I love that Ste- there was such a Stephanie, I, what, what to me seemed like such a Stephanie thing to say when she says, no matter what timeline I'm in, I'm freaking amazing. Yes. Yeah. So, I, and I hope we get to see Steph and Cass together more because that was something mm-hmm. I feel like we didn't get to see too much in that run. And especially, you know, I think Harper, I know some people don't like Harper Rowe, but I, do. I yes, you do. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. thank goodness. Yeah, I think she could potentially, she's got a part to play too. Like she was really heavily focused on and now she's very much not seen at all, which is mm-hmm. frustrating. So I feel like she would also play a great part in a uh, a title with a, a bunch of awesome women. Yeah, I mean, you could have, it, I mean, it could just be Barbara and Steph and Cass, but I think you could easily have Harper. Um, you could have um, Alicia. Mm-hmm. I mean, because we know that there were different intentions for her. Sure. Right. Um, that would have, where she would have taken on more of a, a hero role. You could even have Frankie running the computers. Mm-hmm. You could even have little Tiffany Fox, you oh, know, like, oh, yeah. like. Like Gail Simone showed in that Future's End. Sure. Yeah, so you could bring back Charlie. There are lots of ways to do it. Yeah, and just keep the men out of it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of the future of of Batgirl, we've got to talk a little bit about some sneaky things, I think, that are happening. And it's involving Hope Warson, of all people. Donovan, this is funny because Donovan kept saying he has this feeling that she's leaving. And I said, no, no, Don, you know, nothing's been said. I think she's just going to do it. And his his reasoning is pretty sound, I guess. And his examples are the fact that the comic arc currently just seems to be wrapping things up in a way and, and settling at a certain point so someone else could pick up. And I I could see it when I was reading it, but I also thought to myself, well, this has happened before. So sure. Can't really, you know, it's sort of the same thing of reinventing. We've, we've seen that two or three times before, so I couldn't really tell. But then he wrote me about this Sean Aldridge person, which I didn't really know too much about. But apparently with 25 – wait, we're on 23. So, okay, 24 is written by – Sean Aldridge, which mm-hmm. seems like it's just a one one shot. Yeah. And then 25 is going to be a crossover with Nightwing 46, and it has a slew of writers, including Marguerite Bennett mm-hmm. um, and also Margaret Scott. And I think uh, Tim Seeley, I think, is also on 25, if I'm correct. Uh, it's an oversized because it, they call it an anniversary issue, I guess, because it's the 25. But then with 26, it actually is beginning a new arc with Margaret Scott. I think mm-hmm. I'm pronouncing her name correctly. It's M A I R G 
H-R-E-A-D. She might be mm-hmm. Scottish. I don't know. And then Paul Pelletier as, as the penciler. And so actually, yes, Harson is leaving. I'm sorry. Yeah, I was <laughs> shipping her name together. Yes, Larson is in fact leaving. But the question is, why is she leaving so quietly? There has really been no, I mean, normally with the Bensons, they, that there was, publications that you know bensons are leaving and then when mm-hmm. they were on green arrow they said you know they got on that there was something for that too so yeah. why isn't there any press surrounding hope larson she's sort of slinking out there pretty quietly does that say anything about what she thinks of her own run potentially i i think those are all good questions <laughs> and <laughs> i would like to know the answers i mean we can only speculate yeah. i I was surprised that there was zero fanfare about it. Mm -hmm. And not only are they not sort of saying, sort of trying to hype up her last issues like she's leaving, so watch this arc wrap up. But they're also not, there's no publicity about, look, it's Margaret Scott and Paul Pelletier. And that both of those things really strike me as odd, especially when you look at this, you know, Margaret Scott has kind of a long list of stuff that she's done. Yeah, I mean, um, gar- like so animation stuff and comic books, but like Guardians, Ultimate Spider-Man, Transformers. Mm-hmm. Um, she has she does some create her own stuff too. She wrote a story also in the Wonder Woman seventy fifth anniversary issue. Oh, okay. Like that standalone issue. That was what I had recognized her name from. I find both of those things to be mysteries, and I feel like. It 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 kind of just feels to me like a lack of investment by DC in the book. Sure. And I don't know why that would be, especially when you're supposedly building toward a movie. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yes, that movie. Will it ever get off the ground? I, mm. You know, it is – it's – I'm not sure. I, I know that this book, as well as Background the Birds of Prey, don't, don't have the best numbers. But right. I feel like it's really hard to scrap those books when you need. I, I just feel like Background needs to have a place in the universe. She can't just be shoved aside. And I think Barbara Gordon is one of those characters that needs to to have a book like Wonder Woman. I think it'd be very strange to not have a Wonder Woman book. So. I, I'm not really sure what's what's going on. I think, you know, if Larson, obviously I'm not the greatest fan of her run. Uh, I have had really wonderful moments with some of her issues. I just mm-hmm. don't necessarily agree with her characterization of Barbara Gordon. But my only thinking is that uh, I, I just feel like maybe she's more invested in her creator-owned stuff and the, the other things that she's doing, like Goldie Vance, I think it's called. Yeah, Over Goldie Vance is, is great. Have yeah. you looked at it? Yeah, I think it's delightful. And uh, I also read um, two creator-owned – it's one story. It's now two books. I think maybe it will be three. The first one is called Compass South. Um, so it's a graphic novel about these two sets of twins, and it's like 100 years ago, and they're pirates, and I don't want to spoil anything else. But okay. it's it's quite, it's quite good. I, I would uh, recommend it. So, yeah, I think it could easily be that. It could be that they're trying to switch up because of numbers, but I would really caution about numbers that looking at those diamond numbers is just really not giving us a full picture mm-hmm. anymore. I mean, if you look at, for instance, uh, Ms. Marvel's numbers, Ms. Marvel is never in the top, the top of monthly sales, but Ms. Marvel remains like the 
the uh, internationally the the best digital seller, for instance. Okay. And Ms. Marvel trade paperbacks are selling like ridiculous numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the same with something like um, Squirrel Girl. You know, like stuff that gets into scholastic book sales is selling a lot that way, but not selling a lot in Diamond. Mm-hmm. And in and not infrequently, it is the it's the female characters and the characters yeah. of color that are selling more in the quote unquote non traditional outlets in the bookstores on Amazon stuff like that. So, um, so we I I would venture to say we don't really know what the numbers are, okay. but we do know we do know what that the diamond numbers are not terrific. No. I don't know about the trade paperbacks. Okay, yeah. And, uh, yeah, she just, I think, published something recently, like this past month in May, I think, The Girls of Summer, I think it was called. Mm-hmm. So I just feel like yeah. maybe her heart's more in, I mean, we're speculating, but I just feel like totally. maybe her heart's more in that. But it's just very odd that <laughs> there's nothing about the transition or, or anything. So, who knows? And I'm a little, I'm just going to say on the on the Batgirl title uh i am a little concerned about what the art might look like i mean are you familiar with paul pelletier no i was looking up what he had done but i didn't look at his art well i would i would say it's rather posy and um tna ish like if you do you have the the cover for i mean the cover to batgirl 26 i think is not by paul pelletier it says it's by sean murphy but if that's an indication, I would be worried <laughs> because the, the cover, the cover to bat. Well, yeah, but in a different way from the usual, it's like, I don't know how to describe it. I mean, you are definitely seeing uh, her whole butt and both of her breasts at the same time, but she's also kind of upside down. So I hope that it doesn't mean a new direction for art because I think the art for the past few years um, has, has not been that, has not been that posy stuff instead of cool actiony stuff. Yeah, but we'll see. But yeah, Paul Pelletier, like if you look at his Mara or Sue Storm or stuff. Okay. Yeah, I'm looking at something right now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we'll see. She will go up a bus uh, size. (laughs) Well, I know that when um, Stuart Fletcher Tarr were were coming up with that new outfit, one of the things they said about the jacket was it shouldn't look like spandex with socks and a bra, right? Mm -hmm. That the cut of a leather jacket would be different. Um, so hopefully that will remain that way. Mm, yeah. Well, with 26, we've got this new arc and the solicitation is a little disconcerting. So I'm going to, maybe it's just me, but it's called art of the crime part one during a high speed chase with murderous art thief grotesque, which mm. I can't remember if that is the same grotesque that we had before. I would assume so. Oh, no. The vi- so we're going back into the, the Gail Simone villains here. The villain KOs back mm. with a souped-up stun gun that temporarily fries the device implanted in her spine. That mm. thing that helps her, you know, walk and be Batgirl. That's what the solicitation says. Baz mm-hmm. finds herself in for a whole new world of hurt now that the old wounds have been opened up, and so does Grotesque. <sighs> yeah, so first things first, I don't like grotesque. Um, I don't really want to see him back, but I guess anything's better than that girl in the pervy doll. <laughs> um, can't get much worse than that. The other, the thing is with this frying the, the device that's helping her walk. Now, we've mm-hmm. seen this. It happened recently with the little crossover with Nightwing when they were flashing back and everything. She loses yeah. it for a short period. Pe- 
point of time. Mm -hmm. But here, I guess, who knows what's going to happen. But my thinking is, number one, in real life, people aren't temporarily parallel. Well, I guess they could be. But her thing is so severe that she's not going to be. So it's slightly offensive. Like, you you know, it's just on and off. The other thing is, you know, if you're going to do this, why don't you just take it out and, you know, put her back as her oracle role and have that representation. So those are my two things against this going into it. Right. I mean, this is kind of a have your cake and eat it too. That for maybe <laughs> sure. for an episode, or an episode, sorry, for an issue or two, you have her ha- be less mobile and using a wheelchair, but and then you fix it. You know, I mean, you know that that, I shouldn't say you know, I mean, it, probably that is what would happen. And that's not the way to do it. Either have representation of a person with a disability or don't, mm-hmm. but don't, but don't play with it because that's not, it's not funny. Yeah. Also, we've done this before. I mean, this is something that I think I have a feeling you and I will both say when we get to talk about really discuss background number 23, there need to be more original stories for Barbara Gordon. We don't have to keep kind of redoing stuff that we've already done. And to me, that's what 26 looks like as well. Yeah. Oh boy! Uh, the other thing is, uh, you had to ruin my night and send. Sorry, this to me. no, that's okay. But sorry, uh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you're not. Backroll Annual Two, which is also written by Margaret Scott, so she's off to a winning start. But I'm going to try to keep an open mind. Uh, the solicitation for this says sibling rivalry takes on a whole new meaning in this one-shot story that tracks Backroll's hunt for a so- serial killer whose M.O. strikes a familiar chord, namely mm-hmm. a disturbing similarity to her brother, current convict James Gordon Jr. Family bonds are restored during a visit to his maximum security surrounding. Family bonds? What? But bad uh-huh. doubts linger. Is James Jr. helping to solve this case or pulling her strings in a diabolical power play? I'd, I'd say the second one there, Barbara. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> what are your thoughts? on? Do you like James Jr.? I don't know that we've ever talked about him. Well, let me just say, when I read this solicit, I read the first two words, and I thought, no! <laughs> yeah. I, I shook my fist at the sky, like, come on! You oh, know. yes. So, no, I do not like the character of James Jr. I, I don't. Um, I prefer, I mean, number one, I don't like uh, stalky, horror, creepy kinds of stuff anyway, which I mean, I, I do like Gail Simone's writing a lot, but th- those particular parts of it are not for me. I prefer my Barbara Gordon being the special loved daughter of Jim Gordon, uh, surrounded by her bat family who cares about her, surrounded by friends who care about her. And that in some ways is what makes her different, right? She doesn't come from an unhappy home, a tragic home that kind of catapults her into being a hero. She's a hero because she wants to do good. Um, and she's come from a stable, loving background to do so. And so I think just the introduction of a character like James Jr. undercuts that, undercuts what makes her different. And uh, no, I uh, I was really not happy to see this. I'm glad it's an annual and not in the ongoing solicit. But I think that it's in the annual gives me the impression that DC editorial think that it is a good way to go, probably, unless unless Margaret Scott just sort of pitched it. I don't know. That's yeah. an option. Yeah, I've had bad luck with annuals. Uh, I think 
Maybe the previous one was okay, but in general, the back row annuals have been really poor. Mm. And in my mind, annuals should be exceptional. You know, yeah. you want your run to be good, but if you are taking time out, you it's oversized, it's more expensive, it's got to be special, it's got to be a story worth telling. I, I don't know that that's, it's not a story that I want to read, but it, it's no. really got to wow me. <laughs> Sounds right. like Hannibal Lecter kind of thing. Uh, and in, in contrast, like you were saying, it's, uh, an annual should be really, really good. What was the, there was a Batman one pretty recently that was, was it Batman annual uh, by Tom King and it was with Catwoman and he was older. Oh yes. Yeah. I'm I mean, sure that was, that is, but yeah, no, me neither, but that is what an annual should be. Mm-hmm. That kind of story with that kind of scope that you can't do. Yeah. It is number two. I just looked it up that something with that kind of scope that you can't do within the regular run. Mm-hmm. This doesn't seem like that. And I doesn't need to be 48 pages of that for me. Yeah. See, that could have been the perfect time to do a, a back rolls team up. Yes. Yes. It could have even I, been like an out of continuity story or something. Have fun. With sure. Mm-hmm. Oh man. Well, anything else on this before we get into the actual, <laughs> what you're here for? Or <laughs> no, I mean, I, I will absolutely give this new run a chance mm-hmm. um, and then we'll take it from there. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll be talking since we're going to be doing, I guess, the last issue of Hope Larson's run as well as the last issue of the Benson Sisters run. We can sort of do a retrospective and, and rate how, how we think they did overall. So Okay. Well, we're going to get into some reviews. Uh, Carolyn's going to be in charge of this, but before she goes, I at least want to mention that Barbara Gordon does pop up in the role of Oracle in Robin number 61. It's one of these little, you know, she's in there, but I'm not going to do a full review, and it's called The Killer. Writer Chuck Dixon, penciler Staz Johnson, inker Stan Walk, and colorist Adrian Roy. And I actually really highly recommend this three-part story. So it started in 59, and it was involving the brutal murder of a classmate whose name was Philmont Dellinger. And this classmate was killed just off of school grounds. And Tim had just seen him when this happened. Like two boys carts this guy away and Tim is going to go off. And then this other guy tells him, no, you can't do it. And Tim is also internally thinking, no, I actually can't do it because I'm Tim Drake right now, not Robin. And then when he finds out that his friend has been killed, he's racked with guilt. And then they have to go and, well, he has to go figure out who actually did it. So Oracle actually helps him by presumably reading the autopsy report. She's actually giving him information, so I'm sure she hacked in and found it. And then looking at the site where the body was recovered, and she helps Robin realize that he needs to find a witness who wasn't in the school at the time. And so that leads Robin to find this homeless guy who was out there, and it leads to the killers. So she helps him out in that way. And I just really enjoy Oracle, which we see actually in our Birds of Prey run as well, Oracle working with Tim because I think they have of just this mutual love of technology and I think they're very on par IQ wise and intelligence wise that they seem like a very complimentary match. Mm-hmm. Yep, I agree. 
Okay, well, now on to the main event, and this is really good timing because we're going to be starting the original Birds of Prey ongoing run, and we're ending <laughs> the the most recent one. And so it's special, and that's why I asked uh, Carolyn to be on here. And so we're going to do Birds of Prey issues 1, 2, and 3, which encapsulate an arc. So as a reminder to you people, because I don't want to be old and gray and still podcasting, um, <laughs> I'm going to be doing arcs with, you know, Birds of Prey and things like that, not single issues, which is good because you get to talk about a whole story instead of, you know, one piece and then to be continued. So that's what we're doing here. So, Caroline, you can take it away. Sorry, listeners. This is going to be me <laughs> for a few minutes. <laughs> that they're, they're used to that with Tom, so... <laughs> That's true. Oh, and I, I should say, I should uh, thank Tom for his very kind review of my book, which I did read. And to the two of you for mentioning uh, my book on a couple different shows. So I'm thank you. I'm waiting for the, the check to clear that you have yet oh, to send me. Oh, oopsie doo. <laughs> must kidding. have gotten lost. I'm in... just kidding. <laughs> Birds of Prey, number one through three. Writer Chuck Dixon, penciler Greg Land, inker Drew Garassi. Colors by Gloria Vasquez and letters by Albert de Guzman. Number one is called Long Time Gone. Number two, One of Those Days. And number three, Hounded. And these are from, these are cover dated uh, 1999, January, February, March. All right, here goes. Dinah Lance, the Black Canary, is wearing Victoria's secret pajamas. And she receives a laptop from Barbara Gordon, who is Oracle. She does not want this laptop. Babs tries to ease her, quote, technophobia, telling her that the computer's pre-programmed. Don't worry, so Dinah turns it on. Babs can see her and comments on her hair, but Dinah can't see Oracle, who says she has to keep her identity hidden. Meanwhile, in a jungle, Brendan and Daria, in tattered clothing, are attempting to escape to a village, but Hellhound appears, catching them and saying those in the village fear their master more than they do. He reminds them that there is no mercy for escapees, but tells them he won't punish them as a pair of vicious dogs chase them down. Now, Dinah has covered the computer monitor with a towel, but she takes it off and she scares Babs by holding up a creepy mask to the camera. Ha ha! And now down to business. Oracle tells Canary her mission to go to Real Asia, which seems to be an island in the Pacific whose generalissimo has died. So it's being fought over by his sons and assorted scum of the earth. On the island, a handsome blonde man introduces himself as Reed Montel to its current leader, Jackie Pomeranian, who goes by Jackie Pajamas. And he is a walking stereotype of a mobster, um, kind of brown-skinned, kind of beer-bellied, Armenian-ish name in an Indonesian-ish country with a dark goatee and a gold chain on his dark chest hair. Pajamas tells Montel the whole island is for sale at 10 cents on the dollar, and he offers to show him around. Now, Dinah in a rather contorted pose in a bikini on a cruise ship, is, which she's taking to Real Asia, is talking to Babs. Babs, in contrast, looks kind of dumpy in a T-shirt and an unbuttoned long sleeve and khakis and a practical and modest uh, bob haircut. Babs refers to Real Asia as a cesspool and says, Jackie PJs has million, billion, sorry, in drug money. Dinah says, cool, if this Jackie pajamas has a taste for blondes, we're in solid. But Babs warns her about Jackie and says, just do recon and she'll know what she's looking for when she sees it. They disconnect, and then Oracle, who apparently online is called Rolling Thunder, receives an email from a friend who online is called Beeb, B-E-E-B, about a recent operating system. And they have a short instant message conversation about Oracle's hacking into that company's database before it was released. Beeb approaches the subject of the two of them meeting face-to-face. She says she likes their relationship the way it is as she turns on her shower, which is clearly custom-built for someone who uses a wheelchair. 
Beeb pushes, though, and says, I'm not hiding anything, are you? Which, P.S., spoilers, is bull because Beeb is hiding something and you'll find out in a few issues. Anyway, they disconnect and we cut to the gun. Two officers, a major and a lieutenant, are discussing their hacker problem. The major wants to keep the fact that someone has been routinely breaking into their system a secret so they can track down whoever it is themselves so their program doesn't get cut and so they can be heroes even if they can't tell anyone. Meanwhile, in real Asia, Black Canary scales a cliff, takes out a guard, and sneaks into Jackie PJ's house. Oracle directs her to a fake refrigerator. It's not on. Oracle can tell that through her infrared vision. And the fake refrigerator leads down some stairs to a safe. Oracle cracks the safe via computer. Inside, they find boxes of expensive watches and cameras and stuff and jars with fingers and ears inside them. Canary records the room before leaving and on her way out sees Jackie PJ's helicopter land. Jackie PJ's gets out with two young ladies, two underage honeys, one of whom looks like that woman Daria from the first scene, which is a little confusing, and Reed Montel. Oracle pretty calmly identifies Reed Montel as Jason Bard, former private investigator and her former fiance. That shocks Black Canary, so she doesn't hear two men with guns sneaking up behind her. Okay, that's the end of issue one. Number two. It starts right where the, the previous one left off, with Canary fighting two armed men at Jackie PJ's. She and one of the men fall over the balcony and land in front of Pajamas and Jason Bard and some armed guards. Oracle's visual technology is out, but she's still receiving audio, and she looks very worried when she hears a guy hit Canary and put her in a cell. Then Oracle gives her a cover story. She's an employee of Trans Global Insurance looking for stolen property. She confirms she used to be engaged to Jason and also tells Canary to swallow the transmitters in the necklace and earrings. That's how they're communicating, but she can't because she's currently tied to a chair. Jason enters Canary's cell. She tells him Trans Global Insurance will turn over heaven and earth to find her. He says that Jackie Pajamas will be happy to hear that because he collects pretty valuable, precious things, which he sells back to their owners a piece at a time, a statement that makes Oracle realize they're dealing with kidnappers, and she starts crying and cursing Jason. Jason says he has no intention of damaging her in any way. That shows asking her to, quote, loosen up and let me have a sample and leaning in at her in a really scary way. But when he leans in, he whispers in her ear that he's going to help her. Whew. Both birds are relieved, and he smashes the guard with his cane. So they leave the cell. Oracle tells Canary to stick with her trans-global story. Jason says he's working for a, quote, private party, searching for a missing family member. Canary reveals she knows Bard's name, but not how, and he is appropriately excited to hear he's with the Black Canary. On their way to a helicopter, Black Canary takes two guards down with a kick that shows us that she waxes, but pajamas and some armed men stop them. Jason attempts to talk Pajamas into letting Canary go, and Pajamas just laughs and fires a gun right near Jason's face and tells his men to take Canary to the compound. Oracle hears that Jason is still alive and hears an order given to strip Canary of her valuables to see if, if her masters will pay for her life. She feels helpless and she puts her head down on her desk saying she's so sorry. This is being watched on monitors by someone, but we don't know who. But just then, Beeb emails her and they chat about Oracle have having gotten a friend in serious trouble, which she feels badly about. She asks if Beeb is a cop or something, and Beeb says, not officially. Beeb admits that they too, I'm not going to say if it's he or she, have suffered for decisions they've made for friends they've placed in harm's way. They hang up, and Oracle tries to contact Canary, but she doesn't respond because her necklace and earrings are in pajamas is safe. Now, Dinah wakes up not knowing where she is. She's no longer in her costume, but she's in a button-down and shorts, which will get increasingly tattered. A woman there says they're in hell on earth. This woman is Carlita Blanchard, and she tells Canary that they must pay dearly for another day of life and shows Dinah she's missing a finger. 
Dinah's then taken to see the master, Jackie Pajamas. He tells her about his social experiment, which he says is based on the killing fields in which he kidnaps wealthy people, forces them to work on his plantation, and ransoms them back to their families. If the family stops paying, he sends pictures, then body parts. He asks how much Transglobal loves her. She tells him they'll pay if she sends her earrings. She gets thrown down to the ground, and she has kind of porn face when she's thrown down to the ground, and then she's sent to work in the fields. Hellhound tells Pajamas she's Dinah Lance, the Black Canary, and he's hopeful that she's an escape risk so he can hunt her. Back in the fields, Carlita Blanchard warns Dinah about the surgeon who takes body parts. Dinah realizes Blanchard is related to Blanchard fragrances. Everyone in the fields is rich. They're being allowed to live while Pajamas drains their fortunes. The captives line up when a man comes around to distribute water. At this point, Dinah has her shirt Daisy Duke style right under her breasts. She sees Jason Bard. Blanchard warns her not to speak to him, but Dinah tries to get him to join her for an escape attempt. But Jason is now blind. End of issue two. Issue three, still out in the fields, Hellhound tries to get Dinah to fight, informing her that he, too, is a student of the sensei. She refuses, saying that when she wins, the armed guards will just shoot her. After Hellhound walks off, Jason warns her that he's going to continue pushing her into a fight, which she says is one more reason she has to escape. Bard tells her that will be tough because there's 100 miles of jungle around them. She says he got blinded by that gun muzzle flash saving her life, so she'll carry him out of there if she has to. Meanwhile, Robin helps Oracle go over satellite photos of real Asia with magnifying glasses to try to locate the compound. Oracle gets an email that she assumes is from Beeb, but she finds it's the ransom demand for Black Canary. One million transferred to a blind account in Bosque Verde, which she does not see as a problem since she just steals the money from the accounts of Roland Desmond, Blockbuster. Haha. Back at the compound, Dinah convinces Jason to escape with her. She ties a rope around his waist for easy communication. One tug for stop, two for go, and she says she's doing this not only because he saved her life, but also because they have a mutual friend. They run into an armed guard, whom Canary, of course, drops, and they run, not knowing Hellhound is watching them from a rooftop. He reports their escape to Bamas, who's enraged because the Black Canary is potentially worth millions. In the jungle, Jason and Dinah rest. He says he's there to find the couple from the beginning of issue one, Daria and Brendan. They then discuss their mutual friend. Dinah says she's her best friend, but she doesn't know who she is. They're interrupted by the sound of approaching dogs. They flee, ending up at a cliff and showing us yet again that Dinah waxes and they jump into the water below. Meanwhile, Oracle and a tired Robin have narrowed down the possible locations of the compound to six places. And Oracle is running a program, which she, of course, wrote, to compare the, their original images to some new ones. Dinah and Jason pull themselves out of the water, and somehow, in their extremely tattered clothing that show off how unbelievably large Dinah's breasts are and how unbelievably small her waist is and how hugely muscular Jason is, they head for high ground to avoid hellhound and alligators. Oracle sees an image of them climbing and people following them. Dinah and Jason find themselves above the ocean in what appears to be a real Asian Coast Guard base when they're shot at and they have to run. But the Black Canary, in an unbelievable brokeback pose, manages to take out most of them in one big shot. And Jason, although blind, gets the last one with the butt of a rifle. But there's still Hellhound and his dogs. Jason keeps them back, even though he's blind, by shooting low. Canary and Hellhound fight and she wins by stabbing him in the foot with a sigh and landing a barefooted kick to his face. Dinah and Jason Bard sit on the beach until the Real Asia Army arrives and liberates the hostages. Jackie Pajamas has disappeared and Jason will need surgery. Babs says she'll make sure he gets the best care. Dinah asks Babs how she ever lost track of a guy like that, and Babs says it's a long story. After Dinah tells her he saved her life, Babs responds, quote, I only wish he were there to save mine. And she looks at an old picture of herself and Jason. The end. Woo! <laughs> 
you did it. I need a little drink. Okay. Wes, you sip some water. Okay. I'm going to read a quote to you. Okay. And then you can tell me if you disagree or agree. (laughs) This is from Chuck Dixon, August 1998. Mm Mm-hmm. The support of all you loyal readers of the Birds of Prey specials and your steady stream of letters and email and pestering at conventions was heated. So an ongoing book about two mature, independent, intelligent, resourceful women who actually managed to keep their clothes on is reality, (laughs) all because you demanded it. Agree or disagree, because in your recap, you sure did not shy away from talking about the scandalous things that happened or were shown. I felt like I had to mention them. (laughs) Mention them? Okay, sure, sure. I didn't even necessarily mention all of them, but no, I think that, look, I think that Chuck Dixon is right in many ways. I And I have read other interviews with him. And I think he even said something to you when you interviewed him and Scott Beatty about how they didn't want to do a cheesecakey book. They wanted to just present women as heroes. However, you know, writers and artists are different people. And what is acceptable at a given time might be different from what we might be criticizing at another time. So I think in general, this Birds of Prey, as drawn by Greg Land, is probably less broke-backy and nudity-prone um, than were other books at the time. I do think Greg Land probably scaled back a bit of how he often drew. But I do think, especially with eyes, the eyes of 20 years later, it's difficult to look at the book and not see the contorted posing and the, you know, huge breastitude and tiny bottoms and things like that. Sure, sure. Okay. Well, first, I actually want to talk about the covers. Okay. Uh, I don't often talk about the covers, but just, I don't know if it's nostalgia or what, but I just think that these are really awesome covers. And even in my Issue three, they actually went through the art and process of the covers that someone sketches it out and then they send it off and and add the details and they showed a process of the issue number two cover. But I just, I don't, I love how, (laughs) three is not my favorite. I would say one and two are probably the ones that I really enjoy, but showing both the Barbara and the Oracle identity and then somehow Mm -hmm. having... Dinah there and being able in the cover to encapsulate the fact that they're on a team, but -hmm. they're not physically ever together, I think is really shown. And I just think they're, they're awesome covers. And I know when we get with Noto, I think that Phil Noto, uh, those are some of my favorite covers. I love his covers, but I just, I'm so excited to be reading these books finally. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if I, if I could just say one thing about covers, um, and I, I did note this, to you, I don't know if if you saw it or not in your document, but um, when I was writing my book and I was trying to find sort of quantitative patterns in Birds of Prey, you know, ch- uh, particularly the first 188 issues of Birds of Prey, sure. uh, you know, basically half of them written by Chuck Dixon, about half of them by Gail Simone. I started to notice that what you what you see on cover one and two here, which is that you're seeing only Barbara's head, Mm -hmm. I started to notice that that was really a pattern in Birds of Prey in general. So to the point that I started counting them up. And so there I looked at 151 issues of Birds of Prey. And I noticed number one, that the star 
Barbara was only on 57 covers of those 151 issues. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that in 26 of the 57, she's only ahead. And I was, I compared that to some other comics and found that it just really wasn't the case, particularly with women. In other words, that women's whole bodies are almost always shown. And I kind of started to wonder, is this because people didn't quite know how to draw her in a wheelchair? Like they just weren't, I, I don't mean they didn't have the skills, but like they felt like there wasn't much that they could do with her in the chair. And so they just kind of put her head and had some kind of interesting expression on her face. What do you think? Do you think they, they uh, thought maybe broken bodies don't sell potentially? Yeah, I think that could be part of it as well, that you're really selling the character of Barbara Gordon through the expression on her face, yeah. which sort of notes, you know, her, her brains, I guess, in some ways. Yeah. Um, and they're trying not to remind you that this is a superhero that uses a wheelchair. Mm, yeah. It, it makes sense, at least for the beginning, uh, up until the point that Dinah doesn't know Barbara Gordon is Oracle, just because the only thing she really sees is that Oracle mask, so like mm-hmm. the floating head. So I think it makes sense for, I guess that's like 20 issues maybe. But yeah. after that, yeah, you should be able to see her <laughs> her more full-bodied. Yeah, and it wasn't like it was only in the beginning and not, not later because, you know, in, in the, the first 50-ish, she is ahead at the same rate that she is in like the 70 after that. In other words, the Dixon ones versus the Simone ones. And that covers several different artists, like, I don't know, like eight different artists. So it wasn't just one cover artist kept doing it over and over and no one else did. It was kind of evenly spread throughout all these different artists. Mm, Yeah. Why I'd never known. These are the uh, important quantitative political science skills. (laughs) I guess that you bring to the table. It, no, I didn't. I it wasn't really intentional. It was just something I kind of noticed, and then I didn't want to make a big claim like this happens all the time without knowing the exact numbers. But yeah, so she's on fifty-seven of one hundred and fifty-one covers, and in twenty-six of the fifty-seven, she's she's only ahead. Actual, wow. Okay. Well, besides that, do you enjoy the covers? Yeah, I like the first two. The third one, I just feel like I'm getting a wedgie looking at it. Oh yes, sure. Well, I try uh, to figure out if she's hitting him or he's hitting her, both happening, because it's <laughs> some spittle coming out from her mouth. But Oh, that is actually, that? Yeah. I, I wasn't sure if that was that was real or if it was a color thing. But no, yeah, I guess it could be it, spit. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that does happen in the actual issue, though. Yes. And I also, look, I'm all for Canary kicking dudes in the face. You know, that's one, that is one of her skills. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm good with that. Well, to the actual story, how does this rate as the first story out of the gates for this ongoing? Well, I think they did a good job at establishing the rapport between the two of them and kind of very quickly establishing the differences in their personalities. Know that Barbara is going to be more methodical and sort of cautioning her about making decisions that are too rash and to be careful and stuff like that. And Canary, you see, is kind of this more carefree, I'm in a bikini on my way to this tropical-ish island. And don't worry, I've got it. I've got everything under control. And, you know, so they're, 
Oh, and, and that she's technophobic. Yeah. Um, I thought that in a, in a small number of pages, they kind of give you quite a bit about the two of them. Do you think you could read this without having read any of the shorter Oh, yeah, stories? for sure. Okay. Mm-hmm. You mean like wolves and those? Yeah, revol- yeah. yeah, all those. Yeah. Okay. Do you? I do, yeah. I think obviously there's some backstory that you might be missing just that this isn't the first time that they've worked together. Mm-hmm, and right. I think the, the question of being best friends might throw you for a loop. Well, I guess you could assume that, you know, they've been working together. But, yeah. you know, other, overall I thought, you know, this is great. I think it moves – in. it not only starts something, but I think it continues something mm-hmm. that happened before. I like that there's a nice mix of humor and seriousness. I mean, the first yeah. page of issue one, you have Dinah with this horrified expression. You say, no, no, take it away, take it away. And you figure out that it is actually a computer. I cracked up when Oracle said finding a million dollars is going to be easy. And then it's like a cut scene and you've got Desmond freaking out at this tech guy. And the tech guy explaining about where all this money went through all these different channels. I thought that was hilarious. So, yeah, I thought it was great. It, it wasn't a huge villain, but I'll, I'll talk about that uh, mm-hmm. later. But I think it just it's it's got that uh, the chemistry between the two, even though they're they're miles apart and yeah. got a good mission. And it's I, I don't think it's fluffed or anything. I think three was a pretty good size for this arc. Yeah, and I and it is a good mission because there's kind of a there's sort of an angle about money to it mm-hmm. that Babs can kind of attack from her end, you know, uh, via cyberspace. Yep. But then you've also got this very physical part, which is these are people who are in real trouble Absolutely. and they need to be physically rescued. So I thought that was a, a smart split as well that that both of the birds are necessary for this operation. What did you think about our two villains? Uh, Jackie Pajama, Pajama <laughs> was his his first was the main villain with his his kidnapping ring slash I would say sort of labor trafficking there, and then mm-hmm. of course you have Hellhound as well as an underling, but he's he's almost because he's the first one that you see he's almost touted <laughs> as the main guy. So that was a bit of a, a little fake out that Chuck Dixon did. Yeah, I think that's a good fake out. And it's kind of like the split between Barbara and Dinah, where you have you know, Jackie Pajamas is sort of the, I guess you could say, mastermind. Um, and he's kind of, he's not the one doing the physical action, but he's the one pulling the strings uh, with the ideas and the money. And then Hellhound is the physical one, like the the one that has to be on the ground dealing with everything that Jackie has kind of set out. So I thought that was a good split as well. And it gives you some action and also some, you know, threatening dialogue type stuff and some suspense when Dinah is walking through his place and trying to figure out what's going on. Sure. Do you think that the fight with Hellhound was anticlimactic? Yes. Why did, why would you ask that? Uh, yeah, I guess that was a leading question. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Is be- Well, because he, number one, he was, he seemed the most sinister person because that's whom we are first introduced to. Mm-hmm. And then when he meets up with Dinah, they share their sensei in common. So I thought, oh, this is going to be a really intense, mm-hmm. intense battle. And then it just seems like it, it doesn't get enough page time, in my opinion. Yeah, I would have expected that to go on longer as well. I agree, especially when he throws out the thing about the sensei. You're like, ooh, this is going to be a big fight. Mm-hmm. So I don't know why... It would not have been. You think it was just a page count issue? Like it's there's so much stuff going on in these issues that that it couldn't have been longer? Mm, maybe. I don't know. 
Or he wanted, sorry, or maybe they wanted to have Jason have a role as well. Yeah. Well, he was just shooting at the dogs. Well, yeah, keeping the dogs away was important. (laughs) You're too nice. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess because they wanted it to be the bitter end instead of a fight before they get down to the docks. But yeah, I was Mm -hmm. just looking for something intense to happen. And he was even trying to get her to fight before that. And he's yeah. like, and she said, no, that's okay. And, and sort of moves on, which I, which is a little comical as well. That she yes. Down, but mm-hmm. yeah, I just wanted some, some more. I felt like the Shiva Dinah fight went on a little yeah. bit longer than this. It's, I agree. Yeah, I agree. Do you think Jackie Pajama has the legs to be an ongoing threat because he's not really captured here? I'm sure we might see him again. Is he a pretty good villain to continue on? I don't know how sure you should be about seeing him again. <laughs> well, um, no, no, but, that but makes I, me disappointed. But I agree that there's I there's some potential there. Yeah, I mean, whenever you don't capture somebody, you assume that that's where it's going. Mm. And you're telling me I've assumed incorrectly once again? I might be misremembering, but I don't remember him coming back, to oh, be honest. Boy. Okay, well, just know that I'll call you out if I see him again. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> okay. Now we have to talk about this guy, Jason Bark. Oh, my God, Jason Bark. Uh, now, first of what all, <laughs> first of all, Without someone saying the name Jason Bard, I wouldn't have been able to look at him and know that that was him. No, no, definitely not. And that's why, and, and in, in a way, that makes the reveal of the name more fun sure. because you're like, oh, look, it's a blonde dude. With a cane. Who's clearly been lifting a lot of weights yeah. since, the, since the 70s. Absolutely. <laughs> well, how well does he fit with this narrative and, and why do you think they decided to bring him back now? I think he fits okay because we know that he set himself up as being a PI of some kind, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't, geez, can you off the top of your head remember what the last thing he was in was? Mm, I just remember Detective Comics with Man Bat. Yes. Hmm. Yeah, I don't, yeah. I, oh, so well, I, can't, I guess he was in The Outsiders, Batman and The Outsiders. Oh. Hmm. He helped um, Batman do some things. So I guess we... We know that he's got the skills, and uh, like I said, he seems to have been lifting weights. Um, And it gives – it's a way of showing how little Dinah knows about Barbara. Mm -hmm. So I liked it for that, and it's a a reward for knowing who he is. So that's kind of fun if you're a longtime reader. I didn't love the last sentence that she says – you know, Dinah says, well, Jason saved my life. And Bab says, I only wish he were there to save mine. I thought that was an unnecessarily self-pitying kind of ending, especially since I don't feel like she had been with him for a while when she got shot. Yeah. And apparently, well, apparently, I mean, from what I was reading, I mean, she, it's like she blames him for it, that he wasn't there to protect her. Yeah. From no. the Joker. How about you shouldn't have opened the door? You're you're the daughter of a cop. Come yeah, on. That's All right. Anyway. 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 Yeah, let's talk the killing joke. <laughs> no, let's, just, no, let's do no. it. Let's do it right now. Yeah, I, I, I don't yeah, – I didn't like that either. Yeah, I think it was slightly random because I thought of all the people, you know, it's going to be Jason Barr. But I absolutely agree with you, and that's what I was thinking as well. That's very much – 
a gate into to who Oracle is, only, you mm-hmm. know, a little snippet as well that, you know, Oracle is this person, she had this life. And I liked that Dinah didn't reveal, mm-hmm. even when she, because obviously Barbara could have monitored her, but after she lost all of that, she didn't reveal that we know someone in common because she really does want to know who Oracle is. But yeah. to know that Jason Bard is somehow attached to this person that she calls her best friend in the whole world. I think is pretty interesting. Yes, and there is. I feel like it it dragged out a little bit. The two of them, um, Babs and Dinah, not meeting. Sure. Um, you know, I would have liked that to be a little bit shorter because, like as you indicated before, it's like twenty issues. Yeah, the hunt for Oracle. Hmm. Yes. Right. Do you think it makes sense that uh, Black Canary is? Well, I guess Oracle is Black Canary's best friend in the whole world. Hmm. That took me by surprise a little bit. Well, I guess we're supposed to assume that through the couple of adventures that they've had already, uh, those other stories that were not named, that were not Birds of Prey 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, but that were uh, little minis that kind sure. of had their own names, that they start the way that they start out is they clearly really do not know each other. Mm-hmm. And they don't necessarily know how much they can trust each other. And so through those experiences, they have come to realize that even if they don't have a in real life relationship yet, um, that their electronic relationship is solid enough that they trust each other. Mm-hmm. But was I surprised when I read that line? Absolutely. I'm not sure if it was earned. I, I think there might be a, another gate into the uh, the soul and mind of of Dinah and just how I think probably she's very alone. Yeah, I mean, you know, her yeah. her beloved is dead, and that's Barbara's been with her since that really happened. Mm-hmm. And I haven't really seen Dinah hang out with anybody else. So yeah, that's a good point. Well, I'm trying. To, what was oh geez, what was going on in Justice League at this point? At this point, I don't think Dinah's a part of the team since I've been reading that with Tom. Okay. Huntress has been Huntress is on the team. Oracle's mm-hmm. on the team, of course. Uh huh. Dinah's not in the in the lineup. Okay. Yeah. So then, I guess we haven't really seen her. I mean, I guess we probably see her more with Ollie than anybody else. Yeah. So I guess that would make sense that she would be latching on to someone that she has realized pretty quickly that she could trust. She pops up in JLA Titans quite randomly, but it works out because she's got her little um, speedy. AKA. Yeah. 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 So they have that and they, they're able to grieve over their shared loss. But yeah, That's, other than that, I think she's just on her own. So, well, I want, do you think that Dinah is Oracle's best friend? Hmm. She well, doesn't have Marcy anymore. Best, yeah. <laughs> Marcy. <laughs> <laughs> That was a good pull. Nicely done. Um, <laughs> hmm. What What about, right, and, and Kara, Kara's dead? Question mark. It's 1999, right? So is Kara dead? When does Peter is David. Is this the time where there's Peter David? Yeah, yep, I'd have to look like up a weird little that. Linda slash Kara, so. Yeah, she's not really exactly Kara. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, so we're they're supposed to be friends, but she's let's just assume she's not really around. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think she's got she's got the the guys, you know, the regular bat family guys. Mm-hmm. But does she really have a girlfriend at this point? Maybe not. Not a peer. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so I mean, it could be, and she does. She doesn't have to reveal to Dinah about Jason, but she does. Yeah, that's true. So I guess that's indicative of some some trust. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I guess they could be. Do you? Would you? Here's a statement. I'm going to throw this out there, and you tell me if you agree or disagree. The Barbara Gordon post crisis is a little colder. And I, well, actually, I'm going to change that. The Barbara Gordon post the Killing Joke is a little colder than the Barbara Gordon pre Killing Joke, and especially pre Crisis. Yeah, agreed. Definitely agreed. So I think it's it's a little more difficult to yeah maybe be friends with her, or maybe not friends, but become very close. And I think it just takes time. I would say that with Tim, I think she's developed that relationship with Dick, obviously. And I think with Dinah, it was very professional, but then certain things start to peek through. And so I think at this moment, she wouldn't call Dinah her best friend, but I think they're more intimate friends than they Mm -hmm. were with some of those one shots and little stories and things. Yeah. And, and certainly it's coming and it builds really nicely. I mean, by the time you get to issue 20, then issue 50, then issue 80, I mean, their bond is so strong. Mm -hmm. And and that's one of the great things. And also as the the roster of birds expands, they still are the core of it. Mm, Yeah. Do you think Dinah, if given the chance, would hook up with Jason Bard? <laughs> she did critique. There's a weird moment in issue one or something where Barbara says, like, the years haven't been kind to him. And then Dinah says, I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah, Which right. is really weird. I had to read that a couple of times. Like, what is Barbara seeing that? I don't know. But what do you think? Uh, yeah, I, Barbara's comment was sort of surprising, I thought. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I mean, maybe are we just supposed to think that that was a caddy thing? But Barbara's not very caddy. Yeah. Dinah, well, I would assume that once Bab says, that's my former fiance, and yeah. he basically let me down. I mean, she doesn't quite say it that way, but yeah. that Dinah might, um, that there might be some pause there. <laughs> Dinah, I mean, Dinah's going to have a couple romantic adventures during Chuck Dixon's run mm. that are questionable. <laughs> that I are can't questionable. wait. But I, I, can't, I could see them being a couple for sure. Okay. Yeah, I mean, don't you think they would get along? Dinah and Jason? Yeah. Yes. I think I would feel betrayed on Barbara's behalf. Isn't there probably a rule against doing something like that? I'm not saying it's a good idea. (laughs) I'm just saying I could see how they would get along. Or maybe Jason only dates congresswomen. I don't know. Yeah, who knows? Oh, man. Well, I do remember there's a scene where uh, Dick Grayson's coming out of the shower. Yeah, and I can't remember if Barbara's there, but I think Barbara finds out about it. She's not happy, <laughs> so I uh, can't wait for those sorts of hijinks. My other question, or my final one, unless you have anything else, is just uh, the role of Tim here and and what you thought about his his role in the mission and his relationship with uh, with Barbara in this particular. Yeah, story. I think having Tim here makes total sense, and I think you. You, you summarized well what they have in common. You know, they're both kind of brainy types who love the technology and are both really adept at using it. So I think it's great uh, to have him there. I think it's interesting that he spends a long time over there and even takes a nap. And so he gave her that time instead of being out on patrol with Batman. I think that says a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Batman, you know, I mean, Batman will show up. And and Dick will show up, sure. and and some other guys. Um, but but I like that because I I don't think there needs to be a Birds of Prey that's totally separate from 
the Bat family or from the other heroes. I kind of like it when people go in and out and, and it sort of confirms that they're all in the same world and working together and stuff like that. Absolutely. Well, I think there's not too much. I, I, do you want to talk about this Beeb person? You know more than I. I don't remember who it is. Okay. Well, no, I, I won't say anything then. I but have I mean, a think- guess as to who it is, but I think I might be off. No, you're probably right. <laughs> oh, okay. But it is a little creepy because he's watching – the same person who's watching her is also Beeb, right? We, yeah, yeah. I think that it's fair to assume that at this point. And it's only like, I don't know, three more issues and then and then it's revealed who mm-hmm. who it is. Mm-hmm. And uh, then they – yeah, then you won't really see Beeb so much no, anymore. Okay. Not that but again. But no, she'll, she'll make – no. I mean the, per, the person who is Beeb – You'll see, but there won't be emailing with Beeb. Oh, oh, okay. I see what you're saying. There, there will be emailing with someone else. I see. And, and when they meet in real life, it's IRL. also – no, not necessarily, but it is someone that, that you know also. So she's got like this online kind of life and then there's stuff going on in real life. And I think Jason's around a little bit. Wow. We're just starting this whole new era of things. Yeah, I mean it, it's old and it's new at the same time. But I look, I, I I love Chuck Dixon's run on Birds of Prey. I love Gail Simone's run on Birds of Prey. Uh, we will talk about the Bensons in a bit, but yeah. um, no, I mean I'm I'm happy to talk about any part of this. I think they're just solid stories, solidly plotted, great characterization, fun action, bringing in characters from uh, the rest of the DC universe. I I don't really have anything bad to say about these hundred and change issues of birds of prey that's great well i get were those your closing thoughts they can be (laughs) do you have any uh other questions anything else you'd like to discuss of these three issues no i think your questions really kind of hit on the highlights okay so out of let's see here 10 tattered tan (laughs) uniforms safari uniforms i don't know what would you give this oh dear 9.5. 9.5. Wow. 9.5 right. tattered tan uniforms. I, let's see. Tattered tan TNA. Oh, I well, think. Uh, <laughs> too soon? <laughs> I think I'm going to give it a 9. 9 out of 10 tan, tattered, tan, tattered tan oh. uniforms. I think the reason why, because. Now I'm just disappointed knowing that Pajama Man's not coming back. The uh, The fight was a little anticlimactic. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And, uh, yeah, I think I think a nine is pretty solid. I think I'm going to go with that. But I very much enjoyed them. I was super pumped to be reading physical issues again. I also was interested <laughs> in the advertisements that I had betwixt the pages. So I'm just – I'm looking forward to continuing this little journey. So you you have single issues of these? I do. I oh, cool. Yeah. Run. Yeah. That's great. When I wrote my book, a, f- a friend lent me the whole run um, in single issues. And that was cool because then I could read the letters and look at the ads, like yes. you said. Yep, yep, yep. Okay. Well, uh, now on to listener emails. And as far as I know, there's only been one. I'll probably check again as Carolyn's talking about this. This is from Ian Miller, and it was on my previous episode. He says, with regards to my comment from the Batman Universe comic podcast about diversity in comic creators, I'm still unconvinced about the central issue. I'm coming from a different philosophical perspective, so I don't 
know just how much we can come together on this issue. As we discussed on the Minority Report podcast, I do agree that different lived experiences are essential to give all writing and creating different perspectives. However, just because someone may share my skin color or sex doesn't at all mean that they share my experiences. So I think confining your pressure on comics publishers to hire people or refuse to hire people based on sexuality, sex, or race is still deeply unsatisfying. Nowhere have I argued that you should avoid hiring someone because a straight white man can write that experience. But there are skill differences, uh, skill differences, not still differences. Greg Rucka, a straight white man, has written a much more powerful Batwoman story uh, about a Jewish lesbian character than Marguerite Bennett, even though Bennett has more, quote-unquote, in common with Kate Kane on a surface level than Rucka. Does that mean that Bennett shouldn't be writing? Absolutely not. But I don't think giving Bennett a job on Batwoman over Rucka, purely hypothetical, though there are rumors that Bennett lost a Wonder Woman writing opportunity to Rucka at the start of Rebirth, so perhaps not so hypothetical, would be necessarily justified because Rucka is a better writer by far and has proven it on the same character. By all means, I think we should welcome new and different perspectives, but all writers, unless they write about a bunch of clones who are just like themselves, <laughs> write outside of, quote, what they know, end quote. I think that's essential. So ultimately, I have to regretfully say that while I appreciate you taking the time to discuss my comment, I strongly resist the tendency you advocate to marginalize the majority in favor of the minority. Also, Tara is back, T-E-R-R-A, uh, though through, sorry, through the, ma- those, this is probably mostly for Tom because we, we talked about her, through the magic of relaunches in Deathstroke Rebirth by Priest, and she appears to be the first Tara who had a relationship with Slade during the Judas contract, smiley face emoticon. I will say before uh, Carolyn begins talking, Ian, if you feel comfortable, I'd like to know what your philosophical perspective is, just so I, I, well, I think that would be good to know, just so I understand how we are coming from different philosophical perspectives, so that that would be good to hear. I, I don't think I can say anything new, really, but I do wonder if comics are different than other media, uh, which was something that Tom and I brought up after the break at one point because we were talking about Wonder Woman and Black Panther and how that might have changed had, you know, Ryan Coogler not directed or something. But uh, I've got an expert on here, I would say, or someone who has devoted a great amount of time to talking about these things. So, uh, Carolyn, do you have any thoughts for Ian? I, if, if you want to ch- try to change his mind or maybe... I'll change my mind? <laughs> well, I would address, I mean, you're right. I, I do spend a lot of time thinking about these things and uh, I've spent a lot of time writing about them and, and talking about them as well, but I think it's really important stuff. So I do want to take a few minutes to address these issues. And my comments aren't just addressed at Ian. They're, they're really more broadly about the issues that his email brings up. And I think first, There seems to be concern about white men being discriminated against, but I would say that comics are not a zero-sum game where a straight white man gets fired to make room for someone who doesn't fit that profile. I would be surprised to hear examples of that, although there are multiple examples of the opposite across decades, and, and Greg Rucka replacing Marguerite Bennett on Wonder Woman is one of them. But mostly I want to talk about numbers, because numbers don't lie. And numbers show that today... 
women who, of course, are over 50% of the population, write and draw about 11% of superhero comics. About 20 years ago, they wrote or drew about 5% of superhero comics. So they've doubled from an extremely small percentage to a slightly higher extremely small percentage. But it hasn't put any white men out of work because DC and Marvel are publishing more titles now. So the raw number of, of white men writing and drawing comics is actually about the same, if not higher. And it's also true that comics companies' monthly book numbers go up and down. So that's another way that it's not a zero-sum game. There's room for more than one Batman book, more than one Superman book. There's room for more books, period, as long as they're selling. So there could be, and there has been, more than one Wonder Woman book at a time that, when the market can support it. So both Marguerite Bennett and Greg Rucka can write Wonder Woman at the same time. Again, no one's firing Rucka to hire Bennett. And in fact, as Ian says, Bennett was replaced with Rucka. He does say twice that Rucka is a better writer who's written better stories about Kate Kane. And I would say that that is his opinion, but it, it, you can't really state it as a fact. Um, it, it, it's not everyone's opinion that Rucka writes a better Batwoman than Marguerite Bennett. And, you know, I've been, I've been to Comic-Cons where people are in line to see Marguerite Bennett and they're down the hall and around the corner and some of them are crying. They're so excited to meet her. And I, just to show you where I'm coming from with this debate, <laughs> I've gone on record as saying Greg Rucka is my favorite Wonder Woman writer. <laughs> so this is not an anti-Greg Rucka moment. Uh, yeah, I also love his Batwoman. And if you want to hear specifically me and Greg Rucka together talking about some of these issues that I'm going to bring up, you should check out, um, sorry, little ad here, check out the episode of the Talking Comics podcast, which is called Wonder Woman Panel. It was me and him and Trina Robbins and uh, Mara Wood, who's edited a book about Wonder Woman and the guys from the Talking Comics podcast. Okay, anyway, I think the heart of the problem, and this is my second point, that's is that there's a general fear that an unqualified woman or a person of color would be hired over a qualified white male. And we it's really that we've been brought up in a society that just has taught us that any white male going up for a job is qualified and a woman or a person of color and especially a woman of color maybe is not and maybe would get that job because someone is trying to help their sex or race by giving them a leg up. But if we really think about this. If we really think about the assumption that if we walk into a room and it's a room full of white men and there's only one woman in it, we often assume she must have been given that job because she's a woman. We assume that every man in the room is qualified. I mean, that's again, we have we're not bad people if we think this in a knee jerk way, but we've been taught to think it. But we have to recognize that it's a sexist assumption, <laughs> a sexist assumption that, you know, that men are always qualified and women or people of color may or may not be. And it's pretty easily proven false because if you just think of like your own life, your own work life, there are qualified men and qualified women and not so qualified men and not so qualified women. So I think we would be well off kind of reteaching ourselves instead of thinking, hey, she got the job because she's a woman. Maybe we can reteach ourselves to ask, why are the demographics in this room so skewed <laughs> that so many groups are underrepresented? You know, maybe there was some discrimination happening to produce this particular mix of people. As a third point, this again is kind of a numerical point, uh, like my other two points. Ian says that he says, quote, he's concerned about marginalizing the majority in favor of the minority. But numerically speaking, white men are not the majority. They're actually a minority. They're maybe 20% of the US population. Um, they're nowhere near the majority of the world because women of color are the majority of the population of the world. I mean, 
So not only are white men not the majority in the U.S., straight, white, non-disabled men are numerically a minority. It's just that for a number of historically specific reasons, they came to power and then they passed laws and created norms that disempowered everyone else economically and politically and socially and culturally. And we're still living with the legacy of that. And part of the legacy is in our fiction that straight white men have been writing their own and everyone else's stories for hundreds of years. Try to think about how many women have been allowed to write male comic characters over the last 80 years, even though most best-selling books, regular books, novels are written by women. You can look on any bestseller list or at Amazon or Barnes and Noble to see that. So clearly there are women who can write. Um, and if you look at the top selling graphic novels, they are also usually mostly written by women, not the diamond list. Like I was saying before, that's not really a full picture. And there, um, the most recent study on the universe of fiction readers is telling us that 80% of fiction readers are women. So those numbers seem to indicate that there, there are a lot of people out there who can read and who will uh, buy <laughs> buy books that are written by both men and women. But um, you know, just that that there's no majority being marginalized unless you're talking about women of color as being that majority. Now, as a fourth point, I'm sorry. I'll try. I'll try to be quick. <laughs> I just I just want to get some numbers out there so we're all kind of on the same page in terms of factual information. And this is that for the idea that for every Greg Rucka, whom I love, as I've said, I can unfortunately name you 20 or 50 other white male writers and artists who maybe tried their best. Maybe they didn't try their best, but who wrote and or drew characters unlike themselves that frankly were full of lazy, harmful stereotypes that wind up justifying discrimination and inequality in real life. If you read not just Rucka's woman, Wonder Woman, but 75 years of Wonder Woman, if you read 50 years of Barbara Gordon and Fantastic Four and Justice League and Avengers or 40 years of Luke Cage and Black Lightning, the 90% of comics that are books starring male characters, I mean, read 80 years of, of Batman and Superman. And what you'll find almost all the time across thousands of comic issues across decades is that characters from marginalized groups are written and drawn like caricatures more than actual human beings. And most of that time, they're wildly underrepresented. They're often the only one in a comic like themselves. So they wind up carrying this impossible weight of standing in for every white woman or black man, etc. in the world. If you look at today's numbers, women characters star in about 11% of superhero comics, about 7% of superhero TV shows on air or in development, and about 7% of superhero movies out this year or in development. And numbers just don't lie. The numbers show that male writers and producers have not and do not center female characters and do not represent them remotely close to their numbers in the population. And the same is true when you look at race. So what you see, again, if you look across decades, is you see these messages over and over. White women love fashion and they need to be rescued and they mostly want romance and they're really emotional. And Asian women are all clever martial arts experts and black men speak in street slang and they're angry and violent and they live among poverty stricken hustlers. Now, of course, these things can be true of some women and men in the world, but certainly not all. And these kinds of portrayals just teach readers over and over or reinforce to readers over and over that these people are lesser. And white women know that's not true. And black men know that's not true. And women of color know that's not true. And other men of color know that's not true. So I guess I would just say we can do better. We can try something else. We can let people tell their own stories. You know, show the experiences that straight white men have either ignored because they didn't care about them or just didn't know about them or tried and failed. 
um, you know, to have stories about those other kinds of things. And absolutely, they've succeeded sometimes. I can name you a bunch of male authors and artists right now who have done really well. And I'm sure many listeners, I'm sure a bunch of you can as well. But unfortunately, these people are exceptional. They are exceptions because quantitatively and qualitatively on the whole, in the world of fiction, in the world of comics, most of the time, white males have just not succeeded when they've tried to portray characters unlike themselves. So I kind of want to leave you with a thought experiment. Again, not just Ian, but, you know, anybody who's thinking about these kinds of issues. And the, the thought experiment is, is about this. And like I said, women of color are the majority of Earth's population. But just pretend for a minute that they're not. Pretend they're like 20% of the population of the United States, which is about what white males are. Now pretend that women of color write over 90% of comics, and they have for decades. And pretend that these women of color, when they write, they write books and TV shows and movies with characters who are over 90% women of color. And they write and draw some really awesome characters because they're showing the diversity among women of color, because of course not all women of color are the same. There are many different ways to be a hero, many different ways to be a villain. And there are women of color and some white women and some men who really love these books. And in each of these books for decades, these women of color write and draw either zero men or maybe one man or maybe two men. And pretty much every time they do it, that one man that's among the multiple women of color characters, pretty much every time he's wearing a tank top and tight shorts with a big bulge in them. And he's bent over a lot. And he's very stoic and he's very violent because, as we know, most crimes are committed by men. And he talks a lot because studies show that in all venues, men talk much more than women. And he helps the heroes and sometimes he saves the day, but he needs to be rescued quite a bit because he often overestimates his abilities. And you really want to like this male character. And you're glad he, there is a male character, even though he compares, he kind of pales in comparison to the greatness of the women of color characters. And you kind of like him and he does some interesting things sometimes. And maybe you'd like a t shirt with him on it or an action figure, but there aren't really any. And you wish he was written better and you wonder why he and every other male character you've seen everyone you've ever seen you kind of have to do some mental surgery to make him better in your mind than he actually is on the page and you roll your eyes a lot looking at him because you think no man i know would ever act like that and with all the female characters there are some characters you like and some that you don't some female writers you never read you don't like the way they write you just don't think they're that great some of them you like some of them you really don't and after you see this for your whole life you start to think to yourself, I'm pretty smart, and I know a lot of smart guys, too, and I've read their webcomics, and they're pretty good, so I wonder why DC and Marvel won't give them a chance to write a guy character that's actually like me and my family and my coworkers and my friends, because I know all guys aren't like the guys in these comics. And DC and Marvel answer you by saying, okay, yeah, it just so happens that we are a 90% women of color company, but that's because we hire the best people for the job. It would just be too much work if we accepted cold submissions, but we are sure we're hiring the best people. And my question is, would you believe it? Would you believe they only hire on merit when they're hiring the same people from the same minority group from the same 20% of our society over and over and over for your whole life? Or would you maybe start to think that they just feel comfortable with people who look just like them so they have a little more faith that those people can write well? And studies do show that generally when people act like mentors, when they reach a hand down to pull someone up, they tend to reach down towards someone who reminds them of themselves when they were younger. And that's part of how companies wind up with the same demographics over and over. I mean, you you probably, I think you'd probably come to a point where you would just wish and hope that someone like you, someone who's had similar experiences as you, who's been discriminated against like you, someone who knows that not all men are like those men in the comics, someone who knows that many men are strong and interesting and funny and kind, wouldn't you want someone like that to be given a chance 
to write and draw a book. And it wouldn't just be for, for you. It, it wouldn't be just for people who want to see themselves as heroes. It would also be for all those women of color in power, because you'd want them to finally see that people like you aren't just stereotypical caricatured side characters who make up 10% of their characters, but that people who look just like you are more than half the population and people just like you are heroes too. That book would be for everyone, because... There are studies that show that if you never see heroes that look like you, it can actually decrease your self-esteem. And if you do see heroes that look like you, it increases your self-esteem. And that's how authentic storytelling and diversity and representation benefits all of us, because all of us need to be able to see that, sorry, that anyone can be a hero. <laughs> and and that's kind of the idea that that I want to leave us with, that we all need to see that heroism and intelligence and strength and leadership are not male or white traits. They're human traits, and they can be performed by anyone. And And I just really wish that we could see the whole universe of that. I think we need a new way forward to have good, authentic, diverse stories that appeal to lots of different people. I know I went on a bit long there, but I, if, if anybody wants to hear me go on at even more length about this. Um, this is kind of what my book is about. So um, thank you for letting me answer this question. It wasn't really a question, I guess. Thank you for letting me address some of these issues, um, Ian, that you brought up. And I hope others of you liked my little thought experiment there. I hope it was helpful. Where can people reach you if they want to uh, address emails to you about this? My school email is the best. It's my last name and first initial. So coca c at oldwestbury.edu. Okay. Well, we're going to take a break after all that that just happened there. Uh, <laughs> when we come back, no, it was really well done. My only disappointment is that the little bell interrupted the magic that was happening. Yeah, a lot, luckily I was I was uh, I was definitely winding up there. My my uh, glass case of emotion was just about full at that moment, okay. and uh, that was my computer telling me it can't install updates. So <laughs> okay. it, it did did ruin my mood a bit. Okay. But. <laughs> uh, well, when we come back, we're going to review Batgirl and the Birds of Prey finale. It's issue 22. Woo! And Batgirl 23, a.k.a. Batgirl 75. But first, Zias' Radio Hour featuring Good Riddance, a.k.a. Time of Your Life, by Green Day. <laughs> I'm not saying anything negative. I'm just saying, you know, it's a good, like, time of your life kind of thing. I think it's good. <laughs> Another turning point, a fork stuck in the road Time grabs you by the wrist, directs you where to go So make the best of this test and don't ask why It's not a question but a lesson learned in time It's something unpredictable, but in the end is right I hope you had the time of your life Take the photographs and still frames in your mind Hanging on a shelf in good health and good time Tattoos and memories and dead skin on trial For what it's worth, it was worth all the while It's something unpredictable 
unpredictable, but in the end is right. I hope you had the time of your life. But in the end, it's right. I hope you had the time of your life. It's something unpredictable. But in the end, it's right. I hope you had the time of your life. Okay. Well, here we are. This is uh, sad, I suppose. You know, we'll have to wipe some tears away because we're closing the loop here with <laughs> Birds of Prey number 22. It's the full circle finale. And in fact, it is called Closing the Loop. Writers Julie and Shauna Benson, artist Rohe Antonio, and colorist Marcelo Maiolo. When we pick up, Huntress, strapped to a chair, is still being asked the question... Who is Oracle? As I suggested earlier, i.e. the previous episode, Hypnos does in fact help Helena resist Blackbird. And while Blackbird wishes to retaliate, Calculator holds her back and considers why Burnate's signal has disappeared from his tracking. Meanwhile, at TerraCare, before Batman 41 and Damage Number 4, I just want to let you know, Canary helps the birds pick themselves up after her intense canary cry, and she fills them in on what happens. They're more appreciative that she saved them than upset that she knocked them out, so that's good for her self-esteem. Back on mission, Batgirl believes that they can use the head of burn rate to trace back to Calculator. In a clever ploy to get back to the original members, Batgirl tells Catwoman and Ivy to stay, ostensibly so that Blackbird doesn't steal Ivy's powers. Canary tells them to tell Ollie that she isn't scared anymore. Later at Calculator's lair, Calculator buys the specs for Hypnos so he can figure out a way around them, and Finise, under the control Blackbird, tightens the ropes on Helena and basically disowns her. After some hammering around at the clock tower, Batgirl finds Calculator's lair just in the nick of time, as he is about to forcefully take all of Huntress's secrets out of her head with a helmet that sends a strong electrical surge to fire Hypnos. Before he can turn it on, Batgirl throws a battering and fries the machine. Finise covers Calculator, Blackbird goes after Canary, and all quickly realize that their powers are not working. What's up with that? Calculator used Burnrate's head to create some sort of interference and cancel the powers out, which basically evens the playing field. Finise is now free from mental suggestion and fires an arrow, but Batgirl blocks it, and Calculator shoots his own gun, fatally wounding Finise. Batgirl is fed up with the whole situation and confesses that she is Oracle and goes about proving it by rehashing all the time she got in the way slash thwarted calculator in the history of Birds of Prey, yes, even pre-Flashpoint. Then Canary and Huntress also confess to being Oracle a la Spartacus. 
Venice dies, saying she lived out her destiny, protecting Helena. In a rage, Huntress shoots an arrow at Calculator, wounding him. Where are you then, Batgirl? With powers now back on, Blackbird goes up against Canary, but Blackbird is defeated and then saved from burning to death, thus teaching Blackbird a biblical lesson. Later, Helena pays her respects to her mother and goes off to teach. Canary moves in with Ollie, and Batgirl investigates the key that Gus gave them, finally. She calls the birds to meet up at the storage place where they first met Gus, I'm pretty sure. The symbol there is the Epsilon, representing Delphi, or Delphi, the site of the ancient oracle. Once inside, they see all the paraphernalia and memorabilia that Gus obtained and collected from the many iterations of the birds, as well as the computer system that Babs destroyed a couple issues ago in a rage. They are all thankful for the memories and ready to make new ones. The end! <laughs> okay. Well, as I started a couple episodes ago to you know try to bring some positivity into my reviews that sometimes are negative, though I don't intend them to be. I'm just saying how it is. Do you have a favorite art panel uh, or page of this particular issue? I have two choices. My first is the three panels where the machine is on Helena's head. Yep. And so the second panel, the batarangs going by her head, and the third panel is she's yes. Yep. Okay. My second choice is the panel that's just focused on Babs's face, and her eyes look super, super green, and you just know she's about to do something. And then the next panel is her saying she's Oracle. Oh man, we're we're right there. Yeah, bottom of page eight was was with me. I, I love just seeing Huntress's eyes moving with the batarang yeah. as she went across, and then yeah, page thirteen is is when she is clutching or gripping calculator and saying she is Oracle. I thought that they were pretty powerful. Absolutely. All right. Okay, here we go. Some questions here. What do you think made Canary change her mind and lose her trepidation? We saw at the the end of the previous issue that she was wrecked with guilt. Before even that, she was showing fear uh, that, for me, came out of nowhere. But then we have a, a change of pace here, and she's not scared anymore, and she goes into battle, and she uses her canary cry. So what happened? Where did this 180 come from? What happened is this is their last issue. <laughs> okay. Yeah, continue. Yeah. So I – yeah, Dinah in fear – is not really the Dinah I've come to know. I have some difficulty with that plot point. And I also have difficulty with it because, man, again, this is, you know, across 80 years of comics, the number of women, superhero or not, who are afraid of themselves, afraid of losing control, is really high. And I'm just tired of it. I'm tired of this trope over and over, you know, like women can't control their power or their emotions or whatever. It's just something you don't see in the same kinds of numbers with male characters. So um, I did not have patience with that over the last couple issues. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad we're, yeah, we're on the same page there. It's sort of a uh, Papa, can you hear me situation from Yentl, but it was Mama, can you hear me um, with the... <laughs> I'm just thinking of Deadpool, though. I know. Well, it's like apropos now. I didn't know it before when I was talking about it, but it was like, Mama, can you hear me? But seriously, that's what it was. I, besides the the writing situation, because you certainly really – you told the truth how it was, I would say 
maybe she changed her mind also because her friends, we'll say in quotation marks, were pretty forgiving and that they sort of slapped her without physically slapping her and saying, you know, you did what you had to do. We're fine. Look, we're getting up. And you also took out the threat. So Mm -hmm. I think that that sort of – well, that, you know, that's just – if I'm to reason with it, I'd say that would be the best way to reason with it. But I do – I mean, it is a 180 from the previous issue. So there is – it's very disjointed, I would say. Or jarring, yeah. but uh, yeah. that would be my thing. Let's see here. I've got so many questions. F- okay, the the shooting, the shooting situation uh, was slightly annoying for me. But you know, Finise is stopped from shooting calculator. Huntress is not stopped. You know, I just wonder how Barbara Gordon. I mean, or I should say, I say BG in these notes. But uh, you mm-hmm. know, Batgirl, how could she have known it was gonna be a fatal shot? You know, maybe Finise was looking for a wound. But then, of course, Calculator is really, he's going to go for the kill. What What's her reasoning there? And do you think Batgirl is partially to blame for Finise's death? Hmm. Uh, <laughs> no. Yeah. No, I don't think Batgirl is partially to blame okay. for Finise's death. Because I feel like Finise's death was probably coming. I don't know. And it doesn't seem at the end like they're setting it up like Helena is angry at Barbara. No, I think if there were going to be some kind of blame thing like that, maybe they would show it here. So, no, I think we're supposed to just – I mean, in my point of view is that we're just supposed to see Calculator as a bad dude. And we should have known he would do something like this. Um, And Finise gets this moment of protecting Helena. Mm -hmm. Um, But – you know, I guess this is maybe answering a different question, but I just never felt like I was made to care about Finise all that much. And so I just did not feel the stakes here. I don't know. Do you feel like Barbara was to blame-ish? Well, it just annoys me, you know, when – why prevent one shot and not the other? And I think this is something that's sort of popped up as well, you know, Uh, violence and how come some people are able to go pretty far and other people are told no don't do this and I'm thinking in particular the new 52 birds of prey I remember there were a couple instances where Barbara had to I think it was maybe Barbara had to talk down you know poison ivy from doing something but then maybe Dinah was allowed to do stuff and so I, I just you know Batgirl is clearly preventing Finise from doing something, which is great, but then she also should have been over there with Calculator. And and I'm with you. I'm, I have no emotional investment in Finise, frankly. You know, she was she just turned around in the last... I mean, this is basically it. Her redemption song is right here. So, mm-hmm. you know, I have no connection there, but at the same time, Batgirl should have been doing her duty twice, not just once, and then mailed it in the second time. Yeah, yeah, that's a fair point. So... Do you think that Gus is a creeper? (laughs) (laughs) It's an important question. I was not a fan of him from his first appearance, and my opinion really did not change over the course of his storyline. Okay. But yes, to answer the short answer is um, I do think that that is quite a collection. That it he's sure is. got. Sure um, is. And I suppose one could argue, you know, maybe we collect comics and action figures and that's weird too, but they're not real people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Absolutely. it just, yeah, it's a bit stocky and shiny, I would yeah. say. I would agree with you there. And, and again, yeah, I agree with you that I didn't get too connected with him. I think 
we got some depth with him when we mm-hmm. saw that he was bipolar, and I thought that was an interesting look into to who he is. But you know, he was just a placeholder for the person that you really want to be behind the computer. Yeah, yeah, so. and I think that's unfortunate because it's not necessarily that he just he wasn't a he wasn't written poorly. He just wasn't compelling enough, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're going to introduce a new character who is going to lead these established heroes, you have to, you better make them super compelling mm-hmm. or, or you better do it like you're reintroducing an old character that people have some emotional ties to and you're putting them in this new role. And I think we actually talked about that last year, um, when I was on the show, like why not, why not Frankie? Why not Charlie? Why not Wendy? Why not, you know, it could have been, it, it could have been a lot of other people. And to, so just to have someone both younger and male, I think, kind of subverts the idea behind the Birds of Prey title entirely. I can't wait till I get to uh, – you seems to be a, a fan favorite for you, for Charlie. Oh, well. <laughs> I, I, I just – I haven't really read too much, but just her whole misfit demeanor, I think I, I'm not too much of a fan of. So I think you'll definitely be on for that. You can defend Oh, sure. Well, no, I think (laughs) when she first arrives, she's not all that. She is more annoying than anything else. And like, like everyone else, you kind of find out her backstory. And she sort of allows herself to let her guard down and be trained and become more part of the team. So it's, it's, it's almost like she sort of becomes a new, um, a new mentee for Barbara. Mm. No, once Cass and Steph are more um, independent at that point. So she's like the new kid that Barbara takes under her wing. Sure. I mean, I'm just bringing her, I'm not bringing her up like that she would have necessarily been the best person to do this. But if you had brought in a character who had some new 52 ties to the birds or something, I think it would have been easier to accept that someone is just showing up and being their leader and their only, um, qualification seems to be that they collect a bunch of stuff about them in a stalkerish way. Mm, yeah. Continuing on with Gus, and I'm going to have to get some history from you, so your answer will be a little longer. But he gives her the computer program on a thumb drive, mm-hmm. presumably. That's what I'm assuming. Now, if you recall, Batgirl destroyed the Oracle system, as I'll call it, because she felt like it caused problems. Other people thought it was unethical. So my first question for you is just to get a sense of what you thought about this before. Tom and I talked about this and we were on the same page that we didn't really see why they thought it was unethical or illegal when they were clearly doing other illegal things. Yep, I agree. So, oh, okay. So there you go. So any thoughts on that? And then what do you think has changed in in her mind that she would contemplate using it again when it was causing so many issues before. Well, I think they're trying to, I mean, I guess this full circle idea is stuff that she's saying when she's looking at it. Like you don't know where you're going until you look back and see where you've been. You know, you have to look at the big picture, everything that you need to move forward. It's not just in the past. It's in front of you the whole time. It's right there in front of you. And so is it like she's seeing more through Gus's eyes the the good that is here? Or is it because it's the last issue and they wanted to wrap it up? Um, yeah. yeah. So no, I don't I don't think um we are given reasons. And I think that's unfortunate. 
I think it makes sense for her to use it. I think what didn't make sense was that she was convinced that it was wrong in the first place. Yes, I agree. I agree. But they're not telling us why she suddenly thinks it's okay either. Right. No, we're not. Mm, okay. Compared to one, two, and three, where I of what we did, you know, before we had our little Zias's radio hour, <laughs> where I thought that there was humor mixed well with the action and not inappropriate, but just like these moments where, oh my goodness, that's so funny. Mm-hmm. We have some humor here potentially that I felt was weird and inappropriate at the time. Uh, it was comical out of context, but in context, it seemed weird. Uh, and this moment that I'm talking about is when Canary puts on the burn rate head. Yeah. And is like, <laughs> do you have any thoughts about this? Why it's there? Am I being too hard on that moment? I, I thought they were just going for the visual gag. Oh, I mean, is that okay. how you saw it? Yes. I didn't see it as having great depth. Okay. And it's not and I'm not immune to the visual gag. I mean in in Birds of Prey number 1 that we just talked about, there's this moment where Dinah uncovers the camera of her laptop and she has put this kind of ugly scary mask in front of it and right. Babs is like, "Ah." Yeah. But what makes that funny is that it shows you that these two have a rapport and a sense of humor. And that's not the work that, that this gag is, is doing, mm-hmm. I guess. And it's at a bad time. I mean, you're in a life and death situation. <laughs> One of your colleagues is missing. You're supposed to go find him and you decide to do it now? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's really and, – and she doesn't just put it on. She says exterminate. Right. That's yep. actually not funny, is it? Yeah. Because people were exterminated. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Maybe if there weren't any dead people, it would be amusing. I don't know. Well, how do you think this story ended, just this arc? Well, I like that it ends with the promise of the birds having future adventures. Mm -hmm. I did like – I like the character of Calculator. Because I like the idea that there is someone who technologically can go head-to-head with Barbara. And I think this ended the way it had to end. I mean, like I said, I figured not had to end. I, I guess I, I just assumed that something would happen to Finice and that she would have some sort of turn at the end so Helena could go forward with a better opinion of her. But I did not – I mean, you, you talked about being more positive, but I just didn't – I didn't love this arc. Mm-hmm. And um, I – really didn't love this whole run. There were issues that I liked. There were moments that I liked. But overall, I didn't look forward to reading it month to month. And so I think that those are the feelings I have reading it, reading it now. Okay. Yeah, I think Calculator, he's got to be the big bad. Mm -hmm. Um, But adding people that I didn't necessarily care about, you know, with (laughs) Finise, and she was dragged in beyond her control it wasn't up to her and then blackbird who was okay i figured she was going to make a return at some point with the way that she was in there so i'm glad that they were able to use ends that were loose and and tie them up at the end rather than creating new villains right at the end point yes i agree with you there you're right about that and the idea of blackbird I mean, the idea of sort of absorption of powers is not exactly new, but I thought they did it to a reasonably good effect and that it was good that they brought her back around. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, it was nice to see a larger birds of prey for a short time, but then get back 
the mm-hmm. originals so that mm-hmm. they had it out there. And, and I think we explored the relationships a little more. It's not the strongest Birds of Prey, I think, that we've seen with there, with how close those three can really be. I don't yeah. think we necessarily got there. It seems like they're close acquaintances mm-hmm. with each other. But And then you get to see their, their other lives, and so it's it's really not the end, but they're they're going to continue on. So I'm sad, though, that the, you know, the book is ending because I think there are great stories to tell with the Birds of Prey. But and and my question would be, where are we going to put them now? I know Dinah's clearly going to be popping up in the Benson's run on mm-hmm. Green Green Arrow. I was going to say Green Queen. That was odd. But <laughs> you know, and Barbara has her own Huntress. I don't know. I mean, maybe she was having a relationship with Nightwing recently, so maybe she'll pop up, continue in Nightwing. I've not read that in a couple months now, so. How do you think this – so then this – well, I don't want to actually speak for you. So how does this Birds of Prey era rank with the others, would you say then, for you personally? Oh, geez. That's hard. Um, <laughs> I I liked it better than the initial New 52 relaunch. Okay. I like the three of these three characters together. I think that is as much as I really do like um, Dixon's run on Birds of Prey with just the two of them. I think Helena adds something else um, because she is a different personality from the other two as well. And so she sort of shakes things up. I'm not saying that was done perfectly successfully here, but I think when you have three instead of two, it just gives you more um it gives you more room to move around in the plot and it gives you more potential conflicts and potential coming together in some ways. So I guess, geez, I would say that to me, I like Gail Simone's birds of prey and then probably Dixon's and then probably this one. And then probably the beginning new 52. Mm, Okay. I think I can only, I think I've only gotten up to the 40s because I was Mm -hmm. reading Birds of Prey several years ago. I was starting and then I think I probably got distracted by something. So I will say that I think Dixon's run I would put at the top. Mm -hmm. Um, The second, so I haven't read the Gail Simone, but the second Gail Simone volume, I didn't enjoy that as much. So I think I would put this and then maybe New 52 and then maybe the second Gail Simone run. No, I see. You're right. I, I could have divided those. Right. So there's there's like the bulk of the Gail Simone run and then there's a little break and then she comes back for, I don't know what, 12 issues or something like that. And I agree with you that that last one was not the same as her first more lengthy run. Mm-hmm. And that was something like what? I don't know, 56 to 108, something in that neighborhood. Yeah. And there were a few in between. There were, I think, three issues written by Terry Moore, maybe five by Gil oh, yes. Um in between. But they're so short, it's really not a fair comparison to compare those to the other more lengthy kinds of runs. But yeah, you'll have to let you'll have to let me know, or I'll have to hear you talking about it when you yeah, get you those, those Gail Simone issues. And- mm-hmm. Let me know what you think. I think what I liked about them is I felt like it really explored more of the potential of the relationships between them and how they had different approaches to things. And sometimes that was difficult for them, but they knew they had to sort of stick together and work together. And and sometimes Simone kind of rotated in and out other people who would be on the team for a little bit and then leave. And that also kind of just they, that expansion of the roster in a non-permanent way allowed for more different types of stories and more different configurations of relationships and personalities that would, um, 
either fit together well or maybe not fit together all that well. Mm-hmm. So I really liked that aspect of it. So what would you give this out of 10? And then how would you rate the whole series? Jeez. Oh, you sure you don't want to go first on that one? Okay, sure. I think this issue, I think I might give an 8.5, solid B. I, I thought that it was better than the, the previous issue. I thought mm-hmm. it ended on a nice note. You know, there's still some weird things, but I thought better. The whole series... I think maybe I have fonder thoughts of it than you do because I thought the Bensons did a nice blending of new and old and you could tell that they were fans. I agree, yeah. I, I feel I, I'd i give it a solid A-. minus. Hmm. So a 9, 9 out of 10. Yeah, I think we're going to disagree on this here. Not not by far, though. I mean, I think I would give the whole thing a B. Okay. And I would give some panels in this issue an A. <laughs> okay. I know. I, I like that. I really like that they leave it open with the promise of future adventures. I think that is, that's really important. Um, but I think this issue, I would be more in the B to B minus range. So that would okay. be sort of eight out of 10. Okay. okay. Well, any other thoughts on that one as we move to our last issue? Uh, I am also Oracle. Oh, I see. Yeah. So. Okay. <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah, you know, I'm also Spartacus. That's how it works. Ah, yes, yes, yes. Okay, well, I'm the Roman soldier that cut down Spartacus. Uh Um, (laughs) This is our last issue, folks. So this is Batgirl 75, also known as Batgirl 23, Strange Loop Part 2. This is also the final issue of Hope Larson, but she doesn't want anyone to know about it. Writer Hope Larson, pencils Minkyu Young, inker Jose Marzan Jr., and colorist Matt Lopez. Inside Batgirl's head, in an apartment in Burnside, Fruit Bat again reminds Batgirl that she needs to wake up or she'll die. Still in Batgirl's head, but now in an underground fight ring, two She-Hulks are about to destroy her when she when she realizes that if she is in her own mind, she can basically do whatever she wants. And she uses a smoke pellet to disorient the She-Hulks and then two trank darts to take them down. She then even carries them, yes, she carries two She-Hulks to a hospital. Batgirl and Stella both wonder why she is helping people when none of it is real. <laughs> Babs goes to her apartment and meditates, reliving the moment she was shot with the ray gun and nearly moves her body out of the loop but loses it at the last second. The thought of helping that woman and her children distracted her. She calls for a fruit bat who's not there and then thinks about calling her father and actually does and he conveniently tells her he's in trouble and tells her to go get some items from a, what are those called, social security box or just a security box? Safety Some deposit box? That's what it is. A safety deposit. <laughs> you can tell how much time I spent at the bank. From a safety deposit box at the bank. Babs knows that this is a dream because her father would never put her in danger. So she uses her tech to trace the call and winds up as Batgirl in a subway station where a 16-year-old Martina Falcone, first appearance, oh. is waiting for her. Martina knows that Batgirl is Barbara Gordon and tells Batgirl to train her as her replacement. Batgirl vacillates on what to do, but ends up emptying a gun for some reason and walking away from the situation and her father, hoping that if her brain sees her doing something crazy and out of character, it will snap her out of it. She continues to do stuff that's crazy by meeting up with Kai, as Barbara Gordon, of course, and telling him her secret and then kissing him. Blah. 
This really does break her out of the cycle, thank heavens. And she breaks the ray gun, monologues about wanting the option to change, and how Lou is a creep when the ex-wife bashes Lou over the head with a guitar. She's finally done with creeps. Batgirl drops Lou off at the Burnside Police Department and considers patterns and paths. She says she is on a new path, and while she doesn't know where she's going, it feels like anything is possible. The end! Oh, man. Okay, well, let's start off with the easy question, and that would be your favorite art panel. Okay, well, my favorite panel is the last panel, because kind of like the last panel in Birds of Prey, it sort of feels like it has promise. It even says anything is possible, and she's just sort of looking right at us and kind of smiling but reaching out like she's ready for anything, so Mm -hmm. I liked that. I agree with you. I think also on page seven for me, mm-hmm. uh, specifically the eye. Trying to get to it here. Oh, oh uh-huh. yeah, the eye. Uh, just cool. yeah, her eye and uh, see. I guess that's her mind's eye, right? And seeing that whole situation where you've got Lou and his ray gun, and her going backwards and hitting uh, the the woman and the kids. Also, yeah. the, the the variant cover by Joshua Williamson is beautiful. It's beautiful. It's stunning. Uh, And I just had to point attention because the actual cover is a little creepy. (laughs) Yes. I mean, I I understand what they're going for there, but it's just not my kind of thing. But, yeah, that variant cover is, wow. I mean, it it is beautiful. Okay. Let's see where to begin, where to begin. Hmm. Okay. Well... (laughs) Gee, do you want to start by your thoughts? What are your thoughts? Let's go that way, and then I'll ask some questions. Okay, well, I sort of liken this to what we talked about with Canary in Birds of Prey. The This decades-old trope of women with insecurities and second-guessing themselves and um, needing to get out of their own heads – And I just find that troubling because I guess I'm more used to 50 years of Barbara Gordon, who is hyper capable and and brilliant and open minded. And so I understand that she is younger uh, because people were de-aged when the new 52 started. But younger doesn't necessarily have to mean insecure. I just thought that a lot of this was sort of on the nose about how. She has to save herself and um, save herself by second guessing herself is not something I necessarily quite understand. Yeah, I don't really see that as a healthy notion. I mean, I feel like aren't we really told that we shouldn't second don't second guess yourself, you know, really go in in every situation with confidence? Well, I mean, I think it's okay to not always follow the same pattern and to think about what you're doing and reflect on it. But the way that it's written, because the quote is, I want to second guess myself, mm-hmm. kind of sounds like, like I shouldn't be so confident in every situation. Um, it, it's, I don't know, I guess just the phrasing of it seemed very underconfident mm-hmm. to me. I agree. And unfortunately, we've seen this before, you know, we started off this run with yeah. her traveling around Asia trying to find herself and yep. and I think she's gone through boyfriends trying to find herself so it's it's not a new it's not a new thing but maybe it'll stick this time who knows It isn't a new thing and it's not I don't feel like 
it's a full circle kind of way. I feel like it's dropping her back off in just about the same place where she started kind of way. Mm-hmm. And, and I, and that is unfortunate. And what, what changed in the meantime was pretty much, well, there was Kai and then there was Ethan. And then, you know, it's sort of, I don't want to be able to track the arcs by the guy that she shouldn't have been interested in sure. with that arc. I want to be able to say this was the arc where she did this. And this was the arc where she learned this. And, and I, it didn't land that way for me. Mm, yeah. Do you think that, did you feel at all that Hope Larson was actually writing herself in this story to a certain extent when she's talking about being on a new path, not knowing where she's going, but anything's possible? Do you think that it's, uh, I don't know if I'm using this correctly, but meta? Yeah, I think it can be read that way. But given that we have seen zero press about her talking Uh about leaving, Uh makes it hard to speculate. I mean, not even just a press release. I don't know. That does seem odd to me, but but you're right. I think I think that her attention is on creator stuff, and that's cool. I can certainly understand why people would want to have that control Mm -hmm. with the properties. Yeah, absolutely. What are your thoughts on Martina Falcone? We had a couple different villains, but I felt like the majority of focus was was put on her. And the train me as your replacement part took me by surprise. I mean, do you, maybe she's going to be a bird of prey. <laughs> She'll be part of my Batgirls Incorporated. Do you think that this person actually exists then? Or it was just like a weird creation of Barbara's mind? Well, I don't. If if she is just a weird creation, why such the specific last name? Yeah. And And I think part of it is, I guess I was assuming this person may exist because when you read Batgirl and the Birds of Prey together with this, you've kind of got the Falcone name in your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, I, don't, I don't mind having connections across the books. But this one was surprising. And I feel like, would they really introduce this and not have it go anywhere? Mm. I wouldn't be surprised if they do. But if, you know, I've never seen this woman before in my life or this <laughs> this young lady. It's just weird that if it's not a manifestation in her mind just created by her she had to have known her at some point for her to have popped into her mind and uh, you know you know off panel land is one of the most hated places on earth for me so i'm a little disappointed by that but you know it seems like she could be a pretty cool villain not necessarily to take the place of Batgirl and you kind of wonder how she would have known her identity. I think that's just a fear, sort of the the brain making some fearful situations there. But it's just, I, I feel like we're not going to see it again. I think, yeah, I mean, that could certainly be, <laughs> yeah. but I mean, I, and, and I can't claim to have read every comic ever written, but I have read an awful lot of Batgirl and other Bat family stuff. And I don't recall a Martina. Yeah. I did look it up because I was trying to figure it out, and that's mm-hmm. not. Well, there are many Falcons. I didn't see that one, so I'm not sure. Okay, well, some things that I, I did actually like, uh, and then mm-hmm. we can get into sort of working about that loop or trying to work it out because I'm, I'm trying to work mm-hmm. it out, so maybe you have some thoughts. I liked that the artist, uh, Young, brought back some of the 
sort of the haziness and blueness of the mindscape, which was instituted yeah. first by Babs Tar. I thought that was mm-hmm. nice. I, I was happy that, and I think you might be too, but I don't want to speak for you, that the <laughs> ex-wife was the one who brought Lou down. So for yeah. me, she finally took control of her own life. She was no longer yep. looking like nor being the victim. Yep, I agree with that. I was also glad that while Babs had to sickeningly kiss Kai, in <laughs> in context, it also meant that she knows how wrong he is for her, and so yes. perhaps we can finally wash our hands of him. Yes, I agree with that. I would say that Babs is a little wishy-washy here in this in this issue just because at some point she says she knows it's a dream. But then other mm-hmm. times she's struggling to come to terms with it. And, you know, part of it, I think, makes sense because it does seem so real. And, you know, in that situation, we probably would also be struggling that. But, you know, even in the same mission, uh, she's with her father. She's going back and forth of, could this be a dream? Maybe it's not. Mm -hmm. Maybe, you know. So that was a little, I I wish there could have been some consistency there. I also liked, although I do still think the name is foolish, I did like that Fruit Bat was sort of a guide. Yes. Yep. You know, it it would have been kind of blah if it were like batman Mm -hmm. you know so Mm -hmm. so um having fruit bat come back i thought was appropriate in that situation absolutely and i i did like the art Mm -hmm. you know just um overall and the blueness like you said i think that's cool the loop you know it could be seconds yeah well because she's frozen in that one like midair. She's frozen midair. Yeah. So I wonder if this yeah. is all happening within a matter of real world seconds. Well, and that kind of, yeah. And then it, it begs questions about what we're seeing the inside of. Is it her brain? Is it technology? Is it, what, yeah. what is it? Yeah. Yep. And I, I really did not like that whole, I'm going to, I don't even remember how she put it. I'm sorry. But, you know, some fight that she was in and she was like, well, I'm just going to switch my brain off so I can be a better fighter. But how did how was that phrase? Do you remember? You mean with the She-Hulks? When? Yeah. Back then. No, not in this issue. Oh, like way-, way back when. Oh, yes. I don't remember. But, yeah, she like took herself out of her because I think she was thinking of all these things at once. or she decided to. I don't know. It's that whole yeah, mind but just that I, thing. It, yeah, that idea like, you know, my brain can't take in all of this stuff at mm-hmm. once, so I need to shut parts of it off just didn't seem yeah. um, like the Barbara Gordon that we had grown to know, um, who is portrayed as being pretty brilliant. Yeah. And without the – yeah, I think it's almost her superpower now, like this identical yeah. memory, and now she can create yeah. this little space in her brain. It's a little too much. I agree with that. I think ident- I, the memory, the eidetic memory is one thing, yes. but this – like Cumberbatchian, Sherlockian ah, yes. mind palace yeah. might be overkill. But yeah, I I guess I took all of this as happening in, in a couple seconds. Okay. Her comments to herself are just so on the nose, like, seems like I'd rather meddle in my friends' lives than fix my own. Mm-hmm. Hmm, maybe I should work on yeah. that. Yeah. And I feel like she has been working on her own life for the entirety of this run. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why she went to Asia, right? Mm-hmm. And she's seeing what it's like to be with different guys. And apparently she, I don't know, she's hanging out with, I mean, some people that carry over, but some people have kind of 
disappeared. So she has a little bit of a different friend group. I'm still waiting for like, uh, you know, Nadir and Kadima to come back. <laughs> Nadir, right. Yeah. Nadir, Nadir, yeah. yeah. Um, so I don't know. On the one hand, her mind is so unbelievably controlled and brilliant. But on the other hand, she just is not confident and doesn't know herself and needs to fix herself. And I, I feel like she winds up basically back in the same place. Like I need to work on me. At the end. Yeah. Yeah, well that yeah, I was trying to work out everything uh with the with the mindset. It's it's also like the third issue that we've dealt with mental a mental fight. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't say third issue. It's a third story arc that we've dealt with a mental fight. And so I think that's another thing that's also been a little overdone. Uh I'm sort of trying to work out why her brain is working against her cuz she it's almost as if her brain is also a villain, but I guess I can just mm-hmm. sort of let that go. Yeah, you know, I, I was more appreciative of the fact that she was helping people because at the beginning I was reading this, I thought to myself, why are you spending your time doing this when you know that it's fa- fake? But the fact that she knows that her brain's going to just let her continue on and she needs to do wrong things for her brain to get messed up, I think it, it brings, it's a nice contrast and so i think that works out well but you have to read the whole issue in order to sort of get that yeah i mean did did you do you think um it was trying to be like well she can have great book intelligence but she's got to work on her emotional intelligence or something like that like this idea i don't know she needs to get out of her own head to save herself she needs to and then when she's kind of beating up that guy, she says, guys like you think that what all people want and women especially is stability, familiarity and comfort. I never signed up for the simple life. It's antithetical to who I am for good or bad. I don't want things to stay the same. I want the option to change. And it's like she's kind of merging together the idea of. I feel like she's kind of saying to this guy, you think that we'd rather be in a lousy relationship than be in no relationship, mm-hmm. right? You're kind of referring to his um, wife or ex-wife or whatever she is. Yeah. Um, but she, why does she need to say, I never signed up for the simple life? I mean, we know that. She's a, she's a hero. Yeah. So I'm not really sure that I understand her dissatisfaction with the life that she signed up for. I'm not sure. I mean, she's not going to school. Uh, that, uh, yeah. Yeah, maybe she should go back to school. She and doesn't get have that a pe- boyfriend. Which is fine. <laughs> she doesn't spend time with her father. She should be spending more time with her father. I don't know. All these things. I'm especially, not really sure. Especially before James Jr. comes oh, back. Heavens, yeah. These are just, yeah, all interpretations. I, I think it's just that, you know, this was Hope Larson's interpretation and... Yeah, a belief of who Barbara Gordon was, and and I guess just it doesn't as much jive with our line of thinking. Well, I guess that's kind of what I'm saying that I'm not really sure who this Barbara Gordon is. I've, I'm I'm not really sure what she's trying to tell us about her. I I mean the the line I want endless possibilities is a good one, but I don't feel like we've been told she's locked into something terrible. Mm-hmm. I mean, she doesn't seem to be questioning that she wants to help people and be a hero. So what exactly is she questioning? Just that she's dated some bozos recently? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Maybe it's time to give up the cape and cow and run for Congress. 
<laughs> Is she 25 yet in this version? Ooh, let's hope so. Yeah. I don't know. Well, after this, what are your expectations for the continuation of this title? Well, then we don't have much to go by with those solicits yeah. except leaning heavily on things we've seen since the new 52 relaunch. Mm-hmm. One of those things being playing with this technology yep. that is allowing her to walk and the other being James Jr. And those, neither of them was a plot point that I particularly embraced. So I don't know. I mean, I think Hope, Hope Larson is setting up here that the next person, and this is a kind way for her to leave it, but the next person can do anything. Yeah. If, if the last things that Barbara's saying here are, I want endless possibilities. I don't know where I'm headed. Well, actually you do because you're going to be a hero, but I don't know where I'm headed. So it feels like anything is possible. I mean, that's a nice way to end it. It's a very kind of Stephanie Brown way to end it. Like the way that that, the way that those books ended with Stephanie saying like, it's not over, you know, if you don't want it to be. So I think it can go anywhere. Mm -hmm. And it looks like in the first two issues where they're choosing to go is 2012. And I don't know how I feel about that. With Nightwing? Oh, with Nightwing? Well, they had that crossover. Yeah. No, I meant with the James Jr. and technology. But, well, you know, I I always want her with Nightwing. So um, I'm always happy to see that. We just saw it and it didn't work out well. No, I didn't really. No, I did not. <laughs> but I, but I also do understand. I haven't read. You said earlier you haven't read Nightwing in the last couple months, and neither have I. I did read the ones where he was with Sean, and I thought those were actually good. Mm-hmm. Like I could see them as a couple um, in ways that I could not see Barbara as a couple with any of the people that she's dated in the last year. Sure. Yeah. Well, how would you? Rate this issue alone, and then how would you rate Larson's whole run? I think I would uh, – There again, kind of like with Birds of Prey, there were issues I liked. There were moments I liked. I felt like Birds of Prey as a whole came together a bit more than than this – than the way that Barbara is portrayed here. So I guess that means I have to grade this one lower than Birds of Prey. So I guess I, guess I will go in the – you know, we shouldn't think of a C as being bad. A C is average, right? That's what it really means. Yes. So if I were to go in the C plus B minus area, <laughs> which is average, mm-hmm. which is the higher side of average, um, no, I guess I would I would go eight out of ten for how this is trying to pull it together, even though I didn't love it. And I think I would go with something in the neighborhood of 7.5 for the whole run. Yeah, I agree with you. 8 out of 10 for me on this issue and then 7 to a 7.5 on the whole run. Yeah. And, you know, please don't get me wrong. If I were – if my life were threatened, if my daughter's life were threatened, I could not write a piece of fiction. So I'm not saying I could do better. I just – this just wasn't so much for me. And I mean, I hope people enjoyed it, but it just wasn't so much for me. I think you could write a piece of fiction. I really don't think I could do that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you. Let's do a thought experiment right now. No, we already did the thought experiment. <laughs> okay. Well, goodness heavens. Okay. Well, the, yeah, I guess goodbye, Hope Larson. Welcome, Bye, Margaret. Larson. Well, first we've got, what's his name? Yeah, but that's just the one. I so know. I feel like. Yeah. Well, we've got to give Sean Aldridge a chance. So. Sure. Okay, well, over to Chris for his Batman Adventures review. 
Uh, that's like having a brother eye out of your system and your invitation to the Catwoman and Batman wedding in hand. Thank you very much, Stella. Hello, Bat fans. Welcome once again to the Batman Adventures Review segment. Thank you very much for downloading, and as always, thank you for not fast-forwarding. My name is Chris, and I am very glad to be with you. Today, I'm reviewing Batman Adventures number 6. Batman Adventures number 6 was cover dated March 1993 and had a cover price of $1.25. Our story is entitled The Third Door. It was written by Kelly Puckett, penciled by Brad Rader, who also did the cover art, inked by Rich Burchett, and colored by Rick Taylor. The Batman was created by Bob Kane with Bill Finger. This story has been reprinted in Batman, The Collected Adventures, Volume 1, which was released in 1993, and The Batman Adventures, Volume 1, which was released in 2015. This issue does appear to be available on Comixology. The Third Door, Act 1, The Party's Over. Our story opens with Bruce Wayne hunched over a dead body holding a gun just as other partygoers enter a room. Bruce is immediately taken into custody and is interrogated by Harvey Bullock. Bruce's attorney and Dick Grayson then enter the interrogation room. As Bullock argues with Bruce's attorney, Bruce recalls to Dick the events that led to his arrest. Earlier, Bruce attended a party hosted by David Crenshaw, head of a corporation that Wayne Tech had wanted to do business with for years. Before Bruce can talk business, Crenshaw hurriedly introduces Bruce to Jacob Brenner, diplomat and peace advocate. Crenshaw tells Bruce he'll talk business after he meets more of his party guests. Bruce waits on an outside terrace for about half an hour. Then he hears a gunshot directly from the room above. Instead of taking the stairs, already clogged with curious guests, Bruce decides to leap up from the terrace to investigate the gunshot in the room above. He finds Brenner slumped to the floor, holding a gun with a small pool of blood by his head. Brenner manages to say the word Rose, with Bruce presuming that's the name of Brenner's wife, and Brenner reaching towards the direction of the interior door and grandfather clock, before dying of an apparent suicide. Or was it? The partygoers presume Bruce was with Brenner the whole time, and Bruce can't explain how he made a ten-foot vertical leap, which would lead to more questions. Dick says he wants to investigate the scene, but Bruce says there may be no point. The doors were bolted from the inside. With that, Bullock takes Bruce to a cell. Act 2, Crime and Punishment. Bruce's cellmate comments on Bruce's suit, and a fight ensues. Bruce manages to knock him out, as well as not arouse any suspicion from the guard. Then Bruce wonders about Brenner's last actions, and the word rose, and starts to piece the mystery solution together. Meanwhile, Dick goes to the Crenshaw mansion. Crenshaw remembers Dick and invites him inside, and they go to the room where Brenner died. Once there, Crenshaw tells Dick that Brenner's wife Susan took the news of his death well. Susan? Not Rose? Dick then admires the unusual paneling of the grandfather clock, and Crenshaw says it's Rosewood, and for him to open it and take a closer look. Dick opens the door, and Crenshaw takes out a pistol and slams the handle down on the back of Dick's head, knocking him unconscious. Act 3. War and Peace. With a storm outside, Crenshaw starts to leave the mansion, but upon opening the door, he sees Batman running towards him. Crenshaw retreats inside and back upstairs, with Dick tied to a chair and still unconscious. Batman enters the room through the clock door. Batman tells Crenshaw that he knows Crenshaw killed Brenner, but he doesn't know why he did it. Pointing a gun to Dick's head, Crenshaw explains that Brenner wanted his armaments factory to be shut down, and that a few paragraphs to the Joint Chiefs from the, quote, Great Peacemonger would ruin him. 
As Crenshaw is talking, Dick regains consciousness and sees Batman's 3-2-1 countdown hand signal. At zero, Dick knocks himself over, and Batman knocks out Crenshaw with a batarang. Freed, Dick says he almost felt sorry for Crenshaw, but Batman quickly departs. Back in the cell, Bruce is told by Bullock that the murderer has confessed, and Bruce is free to go. Bullock asks Bruce how he got in the locked room at the Crenshaw Mansion, and Bruce tells Harvey to ask his unconscious cellmate. The end. Ah, I love an old-fashioned mystery. I like that every now and then, and this is the first issue of the series without an appearance from a costume villain. That said, there were a couple of head-scratching moments for me. Why didn't Bruce offer any denial or explanation as to what happened in what appeared to be a suicide? If the interior door was bolted from the inside, how did the party guests manage to open it? Why was Bruce allowed to wear his suit inside the cell when his cellmate appeared to be in regular prison garb? And what about the motive? Crenshaw still seemed well off and looked old enough to be close to retiring. He presumably would have already accumulated enough profits from his munitions business to live comfortably in his remaining years. And would it have made more sense for Brenner to say clock instead of rose, or even the word Crenshaw as his last word before dying? As a reader, the story introduces us only to two new characters, the victim, and if we know Bruce didn't kill the victim and it wasn't suicide, then the other character, Crenshaw, would likely be our killer. As for the art, I thought it was decent. My favorite panel was the first one on page 17, where Batman was rushing through the rain towards the mansion. The bit with Bullock arguing with Bruce's attorney with empty word balloons was a nice touch. There were some nice facial close-ups. The colors were okay for the most part, but the green suit and brown shirt that Bruce was wearing seemed to be an odd combination, and his tie was colored green in one panel, and black in others. I did like the idea of a mystery, and we did get a touch of suspense with Dick in peril. I think I did read better single Batman mysteries in the 1970s, though, and Batman and Detective Comics, with stories that gave us more than one suspect. This was a good premise, not so sure on how it was executed. I'm giving Batman Adventures number six, six out of ten bats. Now, for everyone's favorite segment within a segment, Night Watch, where I take a look at the current events and the Nightwing title. At the time of this recording, Nightwing number 44, The Bleeding Edge, part one, is the current issue. <sighs> a moment we've been waiting for is Barbara Gordon does appear on two pages as Dick and Barbara are having a phone conversation. It's mostly all business, though, as Dick is having some tech questions for her. Later on, Nightwing investigates a crime scene with Detective Swoboda, but there's nothing shipworthy there. So, if you're a Barbara Gordon fan and completist, she does appear in this issue. So I will say, mild, repeat, mild shipper alert. Definitely not spicy. This concludes this edition of Nightwatch. No comments from the last segment. I hope you caught Stella's excellent vocal work as spoiler on last month's episodes of Everyone Loves the Drake Podcasts. Also, be sure to check her out on the Required Reading Podcast. I'd like to give a shout-out to the Sutherlands. Be sure to check out Warlord Worlds, Trekker Talk, Xenozoic Xenophiles, Sensational Sleuths, Fantastic Fantasies, and the Convention Correspondence Podcasts. Listeners, you can find me on Twitter at B2OnBatBooks. I'll tweet about my weekend nightstand reads, old Batman comic books, and I put out a Saturday morning salute where I tweet a pic of an old TV listing from Saturday mornings of yore, among other things. Hope you like it, and I hope you give it a try if you're not already following. The handle is spelled B-T-O-A-N-D-B-A-T-B-O-O-K-S. 
BTO as in Backworld or Oracle, and Batbooks as in Batbooks for Beginners, the other podcast that I can be found on that I co-host with Jerry Green, where we examine and review trade paperbacks and collected material of Batman or related characters. You can also find us talking about independent comics, other titles, movies, and television on The Professor Frenzy Show. Please give it a try. Listeners, feel free to leave any comments for myself on this segment or for the podcast itself on the TBU website, and please consider leaving us a good review over on iTunes. If you'd like to lend your support to the Batman Universe website that has news, articles, editorials, and a fine family of podcasts, you can make a donation on Patreon or a one-time donation by PayPal by following the links on the Batman Universe website homepage. Thank you for your support. If any of you would like to contact me directly, I can be reached by email at bruce.wayne at gothamcity.us. And again, thank you for your support. What events could possibly lead Batman to the world of underground wrestling? What villain could Batman possibly encounter there? Who will walk away with the championship belt in the end? Don't fail to listen to the next podcast where the answers to these crooked, crude, crusty, crusading, creepy, cross-legged cryptics will be cranked out next time. Same Stella feed, same Stella sight. Thanks, Chris. And here's my anime watch list for the month. I was actually winding, I'm having limited amount to, to recommend to you, so I have to get back into watching it. So my movie is called Steam Boy. came out in 2004. It's about two hours and six minutes. But apparently the American version is only an hour and 45. I guess I had to cut some stuff out there. Uh, Ray is a young wonder kind Inventor living in Victorian England, his life is turned upside down when he receives a special package hailing from the United States sent by his grandfather, Lloyd Steam. (laughs) The package contains a device called a steam ball, a device so powerful that it can drive any machine that requires steam with a nearly limitless amount of energy. This takes place in 1866, by the way. Ray is instructed to not let the steam ball fall into the wrong hands, which include the mighty O'Hara Foundation, who desperately want to bring the steam ball into their control so they can achieve their less-than-noble goals. He will need to use every bit of his brilliance in order to dodge the countless goons that are sent to snatch the device from him, and it will be a battle between good and evil, a battle for redemption, a battle for the future. So this is very, yeah, it's got lots of uh, sort of industrial revolution. It's taking place during the Great Exhibition in London. The girl that her name happens to be Scarlett O'Hara is obnoxious, but Ray is fun. Uh, I would say that this is new anime viewer approved. Sometimes I felt like I wasn't watching anime, but an actual, just like a regular animation. And there is a Japanese with English subtitles, but I watched the English dub, and it actually has a great cast. Anna Paquin plays Ray, <laughs> who's, it's mm-hmm. a boy, but, you know, he's sort of 15, so it all works out. Mm-hmm. Uh, Patrick Stewart plays a grandfather, and Alfred Molina plays his father. Wow. So, yeah, great people. So I recommend that. And then I r- binged, binged this uh, little 13-episode anime, Violet Evergarden, which is on Netflix, 2018. The Great War finally came to an end after four long years of conflict. Fractured in two, the continent of Talisus 
Telesis slowly began to flourish once again. Caught up in the bloodshed was Violet Evergarden, a young girl raised for the sole purpose of decimating enemy lines. Hospitalized and maimed in a bloody skirmish during the war's final ache, she was left with only two words from the person she held dearest. Only, oh, not two words, sorry. She was left with only words, because I was like, I love you, that's three words. (laughs) With only words from the person she held dearest, but with no understanding of their meaning. Recovering from her wounds, Violet starts a new life working at CH Postal Services after falling out with her new intended guardian family. There, she witnesses by pure chance the work of an auto-memory doll. Basically, it's a person that transcribes people's thoughts and feelings into words on paper. Moved by the notion, Violet begins work as an auto-memory doll, a trade that will take her on an adventure, one that will reshape the lives of her clients and hopefully lead to self-discovery. I would say that this is also new anime viewer approved. There is Japanese with English subtitles on Netflix. It's... uh, an English dub, and this is also sort of Victorian old school, but then they're weird, like she's got these robot hands, so mm-hmm. kind of technology and things, so recommend both of those, and Violet Evergarden's on Netflix, so easy to find, and I think Steam Boy's on Amazon Prime Video, so for free. Okay, Ooh. well now on to our literature recommendation, and since I brought uh, an educator, uh, I expect that she's going to recommend only uh, sort of academic papers and journals and things like that. So, well, what do you recommend for us? <laughs> <laughs> I, I could do that, but in the spirit of the way you usually do yeah. literature recommendations, I just have a regular old fiction kind of recommendation. I, I do read regular. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. I know it's hard to believe. It's even hard for me to believe sometimes. And sometimes it's hard to make time for it, seriously. But I do try. And I was thinking about what have I read like just in the last, you know, calendar year? What do I think is the best thing I've read? And so my answer is Sing Unburied Sing by Jessmine Ward. I was going to come up with my own summary, but I couldn't do it well, so I'm just going to tell you via Amazon That's what it's what about. That's what I do all the time. And then that way there won't be too many spoilers either. Oh, yes, so, yes. okay. An intimate portrait of a family and an epic tale of hope and struggle. Sing Unburied Sing journeys through Mississippi's past and present, examining the ugly truths at the heart of the American story and the power and limitations of family bonds. Jojo is 13 years old and trying to understand what it means to be a man. He doesn't lack in fathers to study. Chief among them, his black grandfather, Pop. But there are other men who complicate his understanding. His absent white father, Michael, who's being released from prison. His absent white grandfather, Big Joseph, who won't acknowledge his existence. And the memories of his dead uncle, Given, who died as a teenager. His mother, Leone, is an inconsistent presence in his and his toddler sister's lives. She's an imperfect mother in constant conflict with herself and those around her. She is black and her children's father is white. She wants to be a better mother but can't put her children above her own needs, especially her drug use. Simultaneously tormented and comforted by visions of her dead brother, that's the uncle previously mentioned, which only come to her when she's high, Leone is embattled in ways that reflect the brutal reality of her circumstances. When the children's father is released from prison, Leone packs her kids and a friend into her car and drives north to the heart of Mississippi and Parchman Farm, the state penitentiary. At Parchman, there is another 13-year-old boy, the ghost of a dead inmate who carries all of the ugly history of the South with him in his wandering. He, too, has something to teach Jojo about fathers and sons, about legacies, about violence, and about love. 
Now, this is the kind of description that would normally be something that I would I would think to myself, oh, geez, I can't read that. I, it's just too much. It just sounds like too much. But it is also it is the kind of book that is so well written that you don't want to put it down. And when you're when you finish it, you know how some books like you close the back cover and then you kind of like read the book jacket again sure. because you don't want to put it down. It's that kind of book. And I really I mean, it's won awards. I can absolutely see why I, I can't recommend it more highly. I I think it's great. Have you read it? I haven't read that. Nor have I well, heard it. So now I'll have to put this oh, on my okay. list. Yep. Sing, unburied, sing. And I, I, I would give, and I won't give the description because you don't need it, but if I were to give a lighter literature recommendation, I would say read the new Squirrel Girl novel, oh. Too Fuzzy, Too Furious. Oh my, Too Fuzzy, Too Furious. Okay. Yeah. It's the second Squirrel Girl novel by Shannon Hale and Dean Hale. And both of the novels um, pack in the same kind of heart and humor and um, superheroing that uh, the Squirrel Girl comic does. I would say probably, you know, even with a little bit more depth, they take place where when Doreen is like in eighth and ninth grade. So she's kind of just becoming a hero, but she is spunky and confident as always. And she has, um, she makes a bunch of friends in her new town and, and they help her. And it's just, it's laugh out loud, funny. And it also bring a little tear to your eye and it's sort of honest earnestness, uh, about growing up and about what it means to be a hero. Lovely. Well, I haven't actually been reading too much. I'm in the process of listening to a book that I would not recommend, but I, oh. I want <laughs> Well, it's 13 Reasons Why, and I, I oh. wanted to do it just so I knew kind of – because I've heard the debate about everything, and I mm – -hmm. you know, from the – out of context, I agree with it, but I just at least wanted to, to listen to it. So, But I've been catching up on Lumberjanes. They're very slow for whatever reason for putting out trades, so I usually get the trade when it's on sale on Comixology, and then they had a, a boom sale, and so I think it was maybe buy one, get one free or something like that, or they were all 99 cents, and I thought, I'm going to catch up. So I had like 20 issues, and I, I read all of them. So I'm all caught up on Lumberjanes. I'm super excited about that. But the book that that's I'm so, – That's so funny because I just, I just did the same thing about two weeks ago, uh -huh. but I got trades. I got the trades out of the library, oh. and then I caught up after that. Okay. So, yeah, I have quite a bit of lumberjanes in my head, too. Oh, man, so good, so good. Yep. But the book, I thought I was going to finish it today, and then I got distracted by grading and things like that. But I'm far enough along that I can recommend it. It is a continuation of the Elizabeth Salander. Uh, I think they call it the Millennium Series. Mm -hmm. But now, yep. of course, uh, those original three books were – published after his uh, the original author's death, uh, Stig Larson. Mm -hmm. So now we've got this uh, guy who's picked up David Lager Krantz, and he's continued on. And this is the second book that he has written in this. So it's The Girl Who Takes an Eye for an Eye. I previously recommended the other one, which was, I think, The Girl Who Gets Caught in a Spider Web, something like that. Let's see here. So, Elizabeth Salander, obstinate outsider, volatile seeker of justice for herself and others, seizes on a chance to unearth her mysterious past once and for all. And she will let nothing stop her. Not the Islamists she engages, or enrages, sorry, by rescuing a young woman from their brutality. Not the prison gang leader who passes a death sentence on her. Not the deadly reach of her long-lost twin sister, Camilla. And not the people who will do anything to keep buried knowledge of a sinister pseudoscientific experiment known only as the Registry. Once again, mm -hmm. Elizabeth Salander and Mikhail Blomqvist are the fierce heart 
are of a thrilling full tilt novel that takes on some of the world's most insidious plots. Do you think、hmm. you'd be friends with Elizabeth? <laughs> I think I wouldn't mind having her around as protection. <laughs> she seems like yeah. Well, she fights for the things we believe in. Yeah, I read、um, I read the first two, not the third、okay. one. Would you recommend the third one?、Um, well, is that Girl in the Hornet's Nest? I guess I do. I、uh, mean, I yeah. I as a nice little round out. Yeah. Okay. I think so. I mean, if you weren't as engaged in the second one, then you probably will be I, less so by the third one. That's true. I did think the first one was the strongest, yeah, yeah. and it was. It's really more a、uh, violent than than I Ooh,、yeah. am comfortable、sure. with.、Yeah. But、uh, but I understand why.、Yeah. I mean, that's part. Of it. Yeah, you know the backstory, don't you?、Mm, uh, you mean how about how the author? Yeah. Yeah.、Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So yeah, she's、um, she's intense, and、yes. uh, you know sometimes she might go overboard.、Uh, no. So biblically, you know, I can't get on, I can't support her, but I do. I love that she stands up for these people that you know that are are victims, and and she helps people out and hardcore feminist. But、uh, no, I, I think she's a lot of fun. I every time I pick up these, I'm hoping that she and Mikhail will get back together. But it's just not, <laughs> you know, Mikhail's got his other little. Women around, so oh well. Right, right.、Uh, they're making a movie of the girl that gets caught in the spider's web, or the girl in the spider's web, which was the first one of David Lagerkrantz,、mm-hmm. and it's starring the queen herself. I've forgotten her name now. The one who <laughs> played the queen on Netflix, Claire. Yes, Foy. Thank Foy. you. Yes, we we came together like that. You you you、Ooh. helped complete me. Um, yeah, I don't see it though. I don't see it. I saw a picture of her. She was talking in an interview, and I thought not as good as what I saw previously. But that's okay.、Mm-hmm. And I really like Numi Rapace, but she didn't、mm-hmm. return. Oh well. Anyways, this is it. We've made it to the end. So now is the time to share with others how they can support you and where they can find、oh, you. Oh. Uh, <laughs> Were you not、uh, prepared for this? You even asked about my highlighted about when that was going to happen. It was definitely going to happen. You didn't ask me about grapes and raisins. Oh, that was highlighted too. <laughs> You're falling down on the job here. Oh my god! <laughs> That's hilarious. Okay, I'm so sorry. You highlighted it. Let me rewind. <laughs> I should have asked you that before the break. Carolyn, this is a really important question right now. <laughs> oh my God! Okay, I need you to, to, to put to bed. What is the bet? Are you team grape or team raisin? <laughs> Look, I am very pro dried fruit with some cheese and crackers,、sure. with a trail mix. If I、uh, need some quick energy,、uh-huh. but in general, I think fresh fruit is the way to go.、Oh. So therefore, I am Team Grape. I'm really disappointed that you said that right now. <laughs> so, well, I, I'm, I'm subverting the idea that I complete you. We want to keep everybody off balance. I see. Okay. <laughs> Could you now tell us where people can find <laughs> support you, reach out to you if they so desire? Sure.、Um, so the best way to contact me is email. I do actually have a Twitter handle, but I yeah, I never yeah, please, use it. Please, you know,、um, I will so, tweet something to you. I might hear back next month.、Uh, you won't probably <laughs> at all. I well, you know, being a teacher, I feel weird being on Twitter, and I feel like if I'm on Twitter and make it private, that kind of 
isn't really the point of Twitter. So I just don't want to do anything that would make my students uncomfortable, you know, so that's really why. Uh, but, but, but relatively recently, some woman named Carolyn something married some very distant cousin of mine. So there's another Carolyn Coca out there. And so that was part of why I decided I better, uh, take my name on Twitter. Okay, that's more information than you needed. The point is, don't contact me on Twitter. Okay. Email email is best. So it's Coca C, my last name and first initial at oldwestbury.edu. Um, where can you find me? Well, by the time you hear this, I think I'll have just been on the Talking Comics podcast a week or so ago. And um, you can look for some upcoming chapters I'm writing for other people's books. One of them, one of the books is called How to Analyze and Review Comics, and one of them is called Exploding Panels, Essays on Comics and Graphic Novels as New Media Transformation and Transgression. The one that's most pertinent to BTO listeners is um, a book called Politics in Gotham, The Batman Universe and Political Thought. And so I looked over the list of proposed chapters, and I saw that every single person is writing about Batman or a villain, so I proposed a chapter about Batgirls and the politics of feminism in Gotham. So I go st- from Bat-Girl in 1961 all the way to Nyssa in Batman Beyond and all the Batgirls in between. Wow. So I think that would probably be something that lots of BTO listeners would like when it comes out. I, I would think so as well. Yeah, it has a lot of cool sounding chapters in it. And what book could they buy from you? Oh, that's right. Yes. You could buy <laughs> Who's falling down on the job now? Okay, okay. I didn't. I didn't write an outro. I, I need notes. No. Um. So my book is called Super Women: Gender, Power, and Representation. And as Stella said, it, it did win um, a Will Eisner Comic Industry Award for Best Academic and Scholarly Work last year. And I met Stella in person the day after that. So that was great. And yeah, I mean, I have some upcoming conferences and events where I'll be talking about the kinds of issues that I was talking about earlier, about representation in general and its importance. And uh, yeah, so uh, uh, thank you for all of that support. Thank you for the opportunity to talk to you, Stella, and to uh, talk to BTO listeners. Yes, well, it's always a pleasure to speak with you, uh, whether it's uh, via text, email, and now, yes, in person. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Thank you very much for having me. Of course. Well, remember, you can send any questions or comments to me, backroll.oracle at gmail.com, and Carolyn gave you her contact as well. Or if you want to post the question or comment on the actual episode thing on the Batman Universe, you can do that as well. Find the show Mm -hmm. on Google Play and Stitcher. Like the show on Facebook. Follow it on Twitter at backroll.oracle. Follow the Batman Universe on Facebook and Twitter as well, and be sure to support the show by subscribing to Patreon. And once again, thanks to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Backroll Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. And until next time, fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you?
heaven. May the light of this flickering candle illuminate the night the way your spirit illuminates my soul. Papa? Can you hear me? Papa, can you see me? Papa, can you find me in the night? Papa, are you near me? Papa, can you hear me? Papa, can you help me not be frightened? Looking at the skies, I seem to see a million eyes. Which ones are yours? Where are you now? But yesterday has waved goodbye and closed its doors. The night is so much darker. The wind is so much colder. The world I see is so much bigger now that I'm alone. Papa, please forgive me. Try to understand me. Papa, don't you know I had no choice? Can you hear me pray? Anything I'm saying, even though the night is filled with voices, I remember everything you taught me, every book I've ever read. Can all the words and all the books help me to face what lies ahead? And I feel so much smaller. The moon is twice as lonely, and the stars are half as bright. Papa, how I love you. Papa, how I need you. Papa, how I miss you. I hope it's not too boring for people that we agreed on so many things. No, I don't think so. I, normally, I'm disagreeing with people, so it's nice for me to have someone that's like, "Yes, you're right. You're right." So, <laughs> you know, it strokes my ego a little bit. So, well, I think some of those guys just like to provoke you. I think that's true as well. <laughs>